couple of weeks ago, uh, we watched really randomly three three Musketeer films over the course of like a nine Musketeers. <laughs> um, really random. The what the thing is, so we're really deep into Succession, obviously, and we had watched a, you know, a week or two previously before that, Death at a Funeral, the Frank Oz film with Matthew McFadden, um, and amongst other people. And just to be like, hey, look, there's Tom, but he's different and everything. And it's like, ha ha. So then I thought for a sort of a wacky Friday night, woohoo, let's watch something really crazy whilst we jeer and yomp and swing about. For that sort of party atmosphere, something bad, good or good, bad, um, which didn't really matter, but something that it shouldn't be boring. So I thought, oh my God, well, we could do the Three Musketeers films, the Paul W.S. Anderson Three Musketeer film from around 2011 or something. Um, James um, um, Corden is in it, being an absolute oh, God. Um, McFadden's in it. And so it was like, well, let's watch that. And what really tipped it over the edge was we'll, we'll do it. It's Tom and Hannibal, because we're deep, deep into our Hannibal as well. And Mads is in it in the Three Musketeers as well as Cal Risterloon, of course. So we watched that and we were fucked and it was very enjoyable. And then I was like, well, the next day was kind of like, well, we can keep this party going. We've done 2011. What do we swing by a little year I like to call 1993 and watch a little film I like to call The Three Musketeers with Sheen and Sutherland and Pratt um, with All for One and All for Love. Um, Amazing. So we watched that. I hadn't seen that for a long time. I saw that at the cinema. It's not very good, but actually it might be my favorite. Um, we, so that was amazing. And then the next day, pure Sunday, all afternoon, you know, stretched out proper ITV, Easter Monday style we watched the 1973 Three Musketeers with Oliver Reed and Michael York. Um, and that had extra sort of, you know, by that point, it was like, well, we've got to do a, a third film, Kappa. Also, you know, I've mentioned previously, I did this um, this book written by George MacDonald Frazier, who wrote the Flashman books, which I love. And he also wrote Octopussy, amongst some other films. And he wrote this sort of like his memoirs, film diaries type stuff. So I read that about a year ago. But, you know, it's like one chapter is him talking about working with Oliver Reed on Three Musketeers. But then the next chapter is him saying, why English for the English, you know, that sort of thing. And you're like, <laughs> oh, no. So it's like one for you and one for him. And so if you can navigate the, you know, every other chapter, the, the, the film stuff is lovely. And, and he wrote, wrote about writing and being on set for the 1973 Richard Lester Three Musketeers film. So we watched that with that in mind. And it was like a double emphasis because also we had just watched the other two. So what else are we going to do with our Sunday at this point? So um, so we did that. Um, The 1973 one was the most classy, I guess, the less glossy through the 70s. Very good, um, but probably my least favourite ultimately, actually. Whereas the other two were just really silly, really stupid and very slick. Uh, so, and, and and most importantly, especially in the 2011 version, it had good sword fights, which, you know, should be a given for a Three Musketeers film. But when we live in a world with like bad sword fights in a Highlander movie, you know, you're in trouble. But but this was a saving grace as well for all its silliness. So hooray, a, a triple Three Musketeers. And is the next step Dog Tanyan, Sheppy? 
I woke up at three o'clock in the morning on like a Monday or Tuesday and I realized I brought all this on myself and in my mind going around on a loop deep into the night into the darkness of my soul was all for one and one for all Musker hands are always ready yeah that was that was a, a hard <laughs> a hard night I think that was the first thing I ever like played at speedy level on the Betamax. That was the first thing. And so it sounded really squeaky. Like, and it was like the most cool thing in the world. Like, you know, what it was a double speed. It was the first thing I ever heard at double speed, that song. Yeah. Amazing. It's Not grim. amazing. Grim. <laughs> it's, well, it's up there. It, growing up as we did with Chip and Dale and the Chipmunks and so on, it is amazing that was your first full speed, hyper speed. So good, I say. All right. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to mention that I saw those Three Musketeers films. I don't suppose you've seen either any of those Three Musketeers films. Lordy, I've seen the one in the seven from the seventies, and I don't mm. think I remember it very well. Um, but I, I do remember watching that one vaguely. And then, oh man, I must have seen the Sutherland one. You know, I must have. But, or maybe you've just seen that music video. It was Sting that did the song, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, it's well it's sting brian adams and rod stewart wow. three singers yeah yeah um <laughs> it with the whole film that we must cover the ears the oh, it's, not so good, sorry. it's astonishing <laughs> it's very much doing a prince of thieves you know it's 100 percent trying to recreate prince of thieves it's got michael wincott in it it's got michael Kamen doing the music and it's got brian adams but now he's joined that must have been a big, you know, it's 90s Hollywood oh. pay, payday, getting those three in. Insane. Oh, for one, and oh, love. <laughs> it's quite appalling. <laughs> Paul McGann's in it, doesn't know where he went. Oh, McGann. Wow. Good old McGann. Well, McGann. I don't really remember any of them, Sheppy, so I will need to revisit all of them. No, don't, don't go out of your way. <laughs> I think I might have been able to take this saber for both of us. Uh, it was fine, but, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, rock on, or anything. Fine. No, I'm still surprised Disney never made an animated Three Musketeers film. Like, out of all the classics that they made throughout the, well, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, all that time, they never did a Three Musketeers film. And I wonder why. Like, uh, you know, like a proper animated, with yeah. presumably animals as you know not three musket hounds but i'm sure there would be a dog or two in there so, yeah it's surprising i know but there you go lovely jimmy lovely lovely shall we jump right in let's jump let's jump sheppy so uh, i will say welcome to shoulders of giants i'm jimmy hello there i am sheppy <laughs> that's my day, drive time <laughs> Today, Sheppy, I set us a challenge of revisiting a movie that's, I think, beloved by both of us, to be honest with you. Yes. Gross Point Blank, 1997. Yes. We saw it together in the cinema. Of course. Absolutely. Um, in Guildford. In Guildford, yeah. Immediately loved it. I remember immediately us both digging it um, at the time. Yes. We, we did enjoy it very much when we saw it. Um, I don't remember how you know if we just knew you know we're like, oh this film exists we read about it in empire and flicks or whatever when we went to see it i remember really really enjoying it with you jimmy i remember i bought the video and i watched that you know throughout the rest of the 90s and have come back to this film every so often 
I had the soundtrack on CD, Jimmy, uh, for this film. And because it's a very easy kind of like nice, you know, playlist, it's lots of good stuff and the clash and lots of, and, and the Guns and Roses live and let die and all sorts of goodies. So I, I had, I listened to the soundtrack many times, uh, which is lovely. Um, in terms of it, I, I, it's not like I ever forget about it. And in fact, the last time I saw this film before you said that this, you know, for the body was probably about three years ago. So it wasn't that long ago. So it's not ever forgotten. But I think I always forget just how much I like it. And when we did this pod a few uh, a few pods ago, um, where we asked like, what what what's a perfect film? And I gave some sort of like any any five star film you could say is the best film ever made. Yeah, they're all equally the best film ever made. And I threw out some really just random ones, like in Bruges, I believe I mentioned. But I would say, you know, Grosse Pond Blanc is absolutely one that, that would fit that bill. And it's got, in Bruges is such a, a sort of a cynical film, whereas Grosse Pond Blanc ultimately isn't. And it's very optimistic. So I think that gives it a personal edge as far as I'm concerned. I think that Grosse Pond Blanc is in my top 30 of all time. And top 30 sounds like, oh, well, that, you know, what? But when you really boil it down, that's, that's actually pretty impressive. And it's, I, I think it's a really good film and I think it's a perfect film. And I say huzzah for Grace Pondwell. I agree and I with did that, man. It. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, re I want to re hear about the rewatch in a sec, but I totally agree with all of that, Sheppy. That's beautiful, man. And I completely agree. And it's one of those ones where I knew I loved it. I knew it was in my bones from the moment I watched it. And it's never drifted. You know, it's never been a moment where I thought, well, oh, that's aged badly, or that's unfortunate, or that's like, you know, it's just always been there. And yeah. it's just it's just never really gonna break out of the top 30. So something else will always have to compromise. So I'm very happy saying. as well, man. I love that. And when uh, was the last time you saw it? Actually, only a couple of years ago, if that. Yeah, yeah, I saw it really recently. I haven't revisited for the pod, but I, yeah, I, I love it, man. I think the script crackles. It was just wicked. It was my first sort of intro to Cusack's charm and his sort of unique persona. I love that about it. It's so interesting because I, I was thinking about this because I don't know what my first, I mean, One Crazy Summer, frankly, would have been my first real Cusack introduction several years earlier. Um, but in terms of everything else, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was watching Grace Point Blank and being introduced to John Cusack. I knew he was, and I'd seen him in lots of things, but God knows what. Um, you know, I, I've still never seen him say anything. So, but, but yeah, I knew who John, John Cusack, I knew who everyone was in Grace Point Blank when I watched it. But at the same time, I don't know what else I saw everyone else in before that. You know, what else did I see Alan Arkin in? Obviously, Ackroyd is the main one. In terms of those four main players, but all of the characters, it's a real American werewolf wannabe, that all the characters, and especially the four principals, like, you know, Cusack, Driver, Arkin, Ackroyd, and then Joan Cusack after that, they're all such good characters, and they're so well played. Ackroyd is such a revelation, and it is obviously Ackroyd, you know, but maybe because his shape changed a lot from like the mid to late 80s and into the 90s, and he doesn't look like when I think of Dan Ackroyd, I think of Ray Sands, for example. So it's like seeing him, and he's such a horrible character, and you totally believe him, and he's so dangerous as well. 
and he's and he's a real threat and he's nasty and not funny like he's not actually humorous but he's he thinks he is and yeah it's it's a really good performance you could make a film out of any of like you could have for example john cusack and alan arkin that could be a, a 10 season tv show uh, and it's it's amazing and this was pre sopranos i think and it was certainly pre-analyzed this and they that's it, but it's only really just touched on it's just like a tiny little extra ingredient ingredient just thrown in there and it could be a 10 season tv show and his relationship with Ackroyd is amazing and the, the fact that martin blank is an absolute five-star gold standard james bond level assassin like he is, is like a superpower how good he is and that's amazing as well so when he's walking around town and he's interacting with people you do it is almost like he's an alien he's dropped onto earth and he you know he's just talking to someone like zod might just talk to someone in a diner but at any second might just with the safety and confidence with the knowledge that you could just flick someone's head off it's that sort of thing yeah. which is an extra ingredient that i like to all of that and driver and cusack we also in that previous podcast talked about chemistry and we mentioned uh, Clooney and lopez but driver and cusack in this film has got to be up there with the most fizzing palpable chemistry uh, ever in the language of cinema it's wonderful and it's so well written as well like you know they they have their own language and their own little argo together, which is just beautiful, man. It's so cute, isn't it? You don't need to know the backstory of it all and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Have little in-jokes that are just there for their characters. Yeah. Like that. You're not going to get the flashback to when they first did the bed thing where you right. could fly, you know, it's all just beautifully done. I agree, man. Lovely. It's one of those films, like you're saying, you get the sense with Martin's relationship with every single character, like the teacher, but everyone at the reunion and everyone, not to mention, of course, Driver, there's so much there, which is, you're never specifically told his relationship with the bully who was later in Walking Dead, who wants to read him the poem. That's like, you know, there's so much going on there. They have such a history, which is only, it just comes out organically. So you only get this glimpse, but you get enough. It's such a well-crafted film in terms of the structure and also the, the, just the dialogue and the relationship of all the characters. And like the driver, you don't need to see the flashbacks, but there's so much there. It's, it's, it's a really well-written film. It's so light and yet so deep. And deep also going into deep, deep existential human, like what is humanity type stuff as well. Yeah, it's really special. I agree. I, I I almost sort of feel it's it's certainly unsequelable. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But saying that, well, before I get to that though, um, I did also want to mention how well it's directed. And on one hand, it's a very it's very under you know like very subtle um, direction. But on the other hand, it's actually very splashy and stylish. The guy who directed, I think, Miami Blues with. Um, Alec Baldwin and Fred Ward, but he didn't do that much. And he, uh, George Armstead, George Armitage, yeah, yeah. He's, and it's such a well-directed film to lots of little things like those little touches, the way the action is directed is so slick and so brilliant, but again, kind of uniquely, like when Lapu Bell runs into the, the Quickie Mart place where he used to, used to be his home and they had that gunfight. 
you hear the car screech outside and you, but the camera just stays on Martin and he grabs chewing gum and he's just watching and then the door opens and then the gunfight happens. And you know, any other film would have shown La Poubelle arriving outside, but just holds on Martin, you don't really know what's happening. And because it's Martin Black, he's not like, ah, he grabs chewing gum and he's just ready. Um, and it's genius. And he doesn't get the chewing gum because he's cool, it's because he's gonna get a dry mouth because of the adrenaline. It's just wonderful. And when La Poubelle pops up at the uh, locker room and they have the fist fight, amazing fist fight as well, there isn't that classic cinema reaction where he suddenly jumps up. Any other film would have Cusack reacting like, oh, and then they fight. But it realistically, he jumps out and there's no time and he wouldn't. And they just go straight into the fight. And it's such one of those really great intense fights, which he wins with the pen. Um, and so that's, you know, the millions of little touches like that. When he's unscrewing after snipering that cyclist at the beginning, and he unscrews the silencer and he sort of turns around like 180 and the camera whips around him 180 in the other direction. It's a Michael Bay type shot, but it's done really subtly. So you don't really, it's not thrown in your face. And it's just little things like that. And also the violence is really hardcore when he shoots the, the guy on the bike and he smacks into the car and the camera holds on him as he smacks into the road. And then Ackroyd pops up and just really excessively you know, executes that dude. And, and then the fist fight with Lapabelle and the fight in the house at the end when he's smacking the guy with the pan and all of that. Um, it's got, and he's got the blood splay on him when he's saying to Debbie, I know we can make this work. It's, it's so deft and so clever. And so clear, Sheppy, like you're saying, like that Lapabelle fight, which I think is his jujitsu teacher, they cast right. his literal teacher in real life. And um and they uh but you can see all the moves and appreciate it, you know, it's just really well executed. You know, I'm yeah. all for a green grass in your face, shaky shape. I'm not. I, I think uh, you know, it's a style. Um, but for for this, it's really like it it it's just it's so cool because you can just see everything and you really sort of really appreciate it and i completely agree the reaction thing is just wonderful lack of is just wonderful yeah. i also love just like how it changes key in little moments it gives you little shivers like when he's holding the baby or something you know and yeah. like you have that existential moment there and it's like it's just lovely man like it's just got so many little moments there's even just little whispers between him and debbie that make them feel just so real and grounded yeah. like I, I think my favorite is just when they're up above the reunion yeah. and they're just talking to each other and everyone's downstairs. I can't remember what song it might be Peter Gabriel at that point. But it's just really lovely, man. And like I just there's so many lovely little touches like that. I think, they I had think it is Peter Gabriel. Him and, him oh really? And in real life. Well, yeah. I mean that it wouldn't surprise me. Mm. Um yeah, well again, that soundtrack is used so perfectly throughout the film. And like you were saying about the shift changes after the Lapu Bell fight and he kills him with the pen and then Debbie just like comes out and sees it and it's a real Flash Gordon being hit on the head with that egg moment because as the audience it is it does take your breath all the oxygen and you're like oh fuck um yeah it's it's so good his friendship with Piven as well and Piven's then when she's freaking out in the stairs stairway just after that he's like where's our boy where's our boy just that Lovely, and they've obviously stayed in touch over the last 10 years, his best friend and her love of her life. So they do have this kind of connection, which again, you're never really shown, but just moments like that, it comes out. And then he comes and he's the best friend ever. 
and helps dispose the body. And he only really gets angry and reacts when they get walk in like bosses are uh, all beaten up back onto the dance floor and they get the drinks and Pippin gets like a double whiskey or something and Martin gets like a soda water. And that's when Pippin gets angry. He's like, you're not even gonna have an alcoholic drink. You know, who the fuck are you? And that that's just another nice, really nice touch. It's cool. I love Pippin's character in it. That was my definitely my first intro to Pippin. And yeah, yeah. I, he's ten so years, cool. ten years is and has been an, an us thing <laughs> for over ten years, way over ten years. So that's a depressing thought. But yeah, so that's worth saying. Ten years. Ten years, Sheppy. That's carried. Um, uh, I, I don't think I can hear a passage of time without doing a pivot in the car. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, solid. It's a real everything we've been through. One of eight. And I'll tell you something else about all of that in terms of um you mentioned i just want to mention first of all looking into the baby's eyes and all the music is done so well and the the editing of the scenes are all done really perfectly and when he looks into the baby's eyes that's a real eye of the duck moment and more than that it's you know he even says he, he gets the baby's ill this this you know, real really vulnerable so suddenly he's holding this pure vulnerable you know, egg of life, and he's looking at it, and it, and this baby's looking back at him with like this absolute trust and innocence and happiness, and with these big eyes, and blank just looks into the eyes, and it's a real like the untempered schism, and he's just staring right into there through his own universe, through the Big Bang, through his, you know his own mortality and what it is to be mortal and human. And he stares and it cuts back to the baby and then back to him and back to the baby and back to him with Bowie and, and so on and Mercury. And, and, and every time it cuts back to Martin, he's looking deeper in and he sees, you know, the turn of the universe. And that's, you know, his moment of, you know, utter, that's when he bounces off rock bottom, arguably. And that's nice. And I like yeah. that a lot. It's, it, I, it's very difficult to say what the best bit of gross there is no here. best bit i don't no. think but no. i but i want to you know i'm sort of rambling because i don't want to forget to mention you know um there's so much and yeah. i don't also i don't want to overdo it no well i mean this like you say there's no best bit i think there are moments that i just adore even more than the rest you know i've sort of mentioned the bit there the baby definitely i love the um the Ackroyd and kusak cafe encounter yeah. It was just wonderful, like you know, just all the, like you say, the terrible Ackroyd gags, like the <laughs> pumper and the like, you know, the yeah. and all that sort of stuff. It really hurts him, dog, you know. Yeah, it's really good. And then and just the, the way they just they kind of they've got the guns in the paper bag, and they, yeah. just, and they do that. It's so yeah, cool. and there's a, they're, yeah, they are one hundred percent on the edge. Like they could try and shoot me. They're they're so on edge. On, on all their meetings, it's it's great. Um, which leads me, actually, I wanted to also mention before I forget, when Martin and Ackroyd come face to face for the first time in the film, where after the hit near the beginning, where are you, Budapest? Ah, city of the cathedrals. And he turns up in his car and they hang up. The <laughs> and like, hey, how you doing, buddy? And they're shaking hands and <laughs> holding the guns and all of that, and they're doing this sort of dance. Martin's body language, I, I noticed this for the first time, I think, on this last viewing. Martin's body language when he's doing that is being ultra wary and ultra ready for action yeah. and just really on the edge. 
it's the exact same body language he has when he meets Debbie and he goes into the, the radio booth and that he's, he's, it's exactly the same. And that's not a coincidence, obviously. And that's just like a really nice touch as well. It's like, yeah, you know, not so many cool. people, you know, can put him on the back foot. Um, so that is lovely. And that makes me very happy. And that Freud's relationship. And let's not make, you know, even forget Hank Azaria and the, 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 the dude from Buffy and all of that as well. Really good, different factions. And Mini Driver's dad, the baddie from Lethal Weapon, amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's all very solid. I, I wrote some notes. So, like I mentioned, I didn't. What I I wrote my pitch before rewatching the film, but then I did have it all lined up. So I did we we did watch it, um, and it hasn't really changed anything as to my pitch, really. But it did make me realize had i seen the film again before writing the pitch i know for a fact my pitch would be 100 percent different and i know what it will be i won't say anything now i'll wait until my actual pitch and i'll just mention very broadly what, what it would be but that was interesting my notes that i did write was um amazing chemistry up there with the best um then oh oh and yeah, I'll, I'll leave this other thing about like possible futures. I like the idea that Martin, um, he could kick off at any second, um, which is which is nice. Um, and there was one more thing I said. Oh yeah, well just again, that just that meeting with Debbie when he comes into the radio booth and the first thing is they have this instant and massive magnetic attraction and they kiss each other and it's like they don't even think about it and then they break apart. And then, and then after that initial buzz has been hit with the kiss, that's when he gets all defensive, like you know, like he does with Aykroyd. So, so yes, I think that's all the things that I definitely didn't want to forget. And there are, of course, going to be millions of other things that I have forgotten to mention. But um, it's very good, Jimmy. It's a very well written, directed, and acted film. I'm really happy, man. And I'll be honest, like I've had mainly success at showing it to other people but i remember vividly showing it to my older brother ollie and vicky once when we were like oh what do we watch i said we've got to watch this it's amazing like you know and i just didn't vibe with it it was really? awful it was really awkward it's early 2000s and i was like oh man but um but no 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 i think we are fully vindicated and i think most people agree it's it's right up there you know i wouldn't i wouldn't you know it's not majority rule or anything uh, that's fine it is relatively specific it just happens to get me where i'm living I think in my it house I mean, I hadn't seen much that was sort of, I don't want to say it's like an indie flavor. It's got a little indie flavor, isn't it? It's an indie sprinkle. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like young Jimmy in 1997, how much he'd seen in that space. And like just, I, I think that specific vibe, I don't think I'd ever felt it or, you know, watched it in the cinema maybe or whatever. Like, you know, there was just a specific, it just struck a really amazing chord, I think. Um, but yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't think I'd had much. I hadn't seen the Grifters, hadn't seen Say Anything. I have seen yeah. that since Sheppy. Can't bloody remember it. It's one of those yeah. animal houses, you know. I watched it too late right. to really get into my bones. But anyway, right. um, but yeah, yeah. Better I, Off Dead is another one that I think, yeah. which I don't think I've seen, but um, the 80s Cusack. Like I say, I'm a one crazy summer man, always happening, always will be. <laughs> one crazy summer for life, yo. I've got two things for you, two questions. 
Um, well, I guess it will come out possibly in your sequel as well. No, you know, it, there, there's it, there's some interesting um, ambiguity at the end of the movie, potentially around whether he's quit or not. It seems to be she's sort of accepting him for who he is as well at the end when they drive away. Mm. But it's just interesting that, isn't it? Sort of how much to put into. I think just my own take there is he has quit because he no longer wants to kill people, and mm. that's where he got to that's how i see it um yeah but you're right i mean you're in you're out and it doesn't really have a massive epilogue the epilogue is then driving with yeah. her signing on the radio so yeah but it seems like you know it's such a concise film you know there's not an ounce of fat on it so yeah it is actually ripe for for possible you know i mean for one thing, I'll just tell you this tiny sort of spoiler, but one my my sequel that I didn't write, but I probably would have had I seen the film before writing the pitch, would have been potentially would have just continued immediately, um, and not had you know and just gone straight in with you. Know, it would even be six months later, but if it was going to be six months later, why not just have it immediate? And so that was that's my what if of the what if. Which I do have some notes, but I won't say it. It's my turn to, to actually pitch proper. But yeah, oh, there was one other thing that I actually noticed. I knew there was something in the back of my mind that I wanted to mention. There's one thing I don't think I'd ever mentioned uh, or noticed before, which is in the film when he's sitting there on his bed procrastinating and he doesn't want to open the red folder and you know mm -hmm. you're a handsome devil. What's your name and all of that? And he kind of he's he's sort of all over the place. Maybe he's just been on the phone to Arkin. And he's a bit discombobulated, and so to calm down, he gets out like his favorite toy box, basically his great big suitcase, and he flips it open. It's got all the guns and hardware and knives, and he opens it up and everything. And he takes out like a knife, and he sort of like holds it and he taps it. And it's not. I think in the previous times I've seen it, I always maybe assumed he's just checking his weapons because he's professional, but he's not. He's he's um he's fetishizing it like massively, and you get a little peek into his life like six months before this, before his crisis began, basically. And he's there and he's fondling this knife and it's very dark and creepy and sexual. And then he kind of snaps out of it. And like, that's what I've always done in moments where I've been a bit unbalanced. I've taken out my, my toys and I've like, had a little play around with them. Whereas now he catches himself and he put, packs it away and he immediately goes and sees Debbie. And, it's, and that's when they do the whole airplane. And that's, that's what, nice you know that's actually really deep and that says a lot so i like that mm. yeah nice i've not even sort of reflected like that it's cool another reason why i'm glad i saw the film again yeah just man. for these new observations it's it's very satisfying hey the second question i wanted to ask you was just do we know what debbie's dad did we don't do we, we don't know how no. sweet that he really was I've, i kind of like that ambiguity too by the way yes but um indicates that you know, you've been a naughty boy yeah meaning he's been breaking the law and pissing off the wrong people or he's not taking mm. bribes anymore he's been taking the wrong bribes but then when in front of debbie the dad says it gives the indication that he's um gonna testify against some big mob boss in court and that's what it is my testimony but again you're kind of given you could say you're a naughty boy or ratting out the people who you used to deal with it could mean that or it could just be he's lying in front of his daughter and he has been like corrupt 
and everything. So yeah, it is left open, and that's that's also nice. Yeah. And I'm going to touch on this now, but this is really a bit for a bit later. Maybe you pulled this yourself. So um, I will just mention the other thing is the mention of Debbie's ex-husband, and they sort of brush over it. And I that and spoiler, he's a small element in my sequel. But had I seen the film first, it would have been a much much larger thread because really you could do a lot with that. Yeah, um, I haven't done anything with it. it. Oh, well, that's great. It's forgotten tremendously to ambiguous. It is the ultimate of loose threads. Um, it's it's really, um, yeah, that you could do all sorts. You could, you know, she says, um, I'm married, I guess I just wanted to escape. Um, and, you know, they're probably married for like five years. Probably. You're not told, you're not told. Um, so it's like, but what does that mean? I just wanted to escape. What? It could just mean where he lived in Chicago or something, so I got out of Detroit or whatever, or I just moved to a different place away from this house, away from this town, this small town, which would make sense, and that could absolutely be it, and she just married the first guy who she, you know, could see a potential future with, but it was, you know, never going to be, she's obviously never got over Martin, so she had, she went off and had a different life, and it didn't take, and they divorced, could be, or it could be that he's like some dodgy massive gangster criminal and she got sucked into that and that's a sequel plot waiting to happen where he comes back on the scene i've had this idea actually i will just mention now um it, if, if i was going to do this it would be Ackroyd comes back with a massive neck brace and a sort of a jigsaw scar face his husband pops up and um you know marty and debbie are going to get married and he's rich and powerful and he owns an island and he invites them there for this big group gathering. My wedding present to you, I see um, Billy Zane in Titanic. And then, you know, it's mind games and assassins on this island. And that's that's a sequel that I didn't write. But that's just from that thread. That's probably where I would have gone had I not written my pitch first. So there you go. Nice, I <laughs> I had totally forgot she was married, so I definitely haven't pulled that thread. Brilliant. I, I very nearly did bring Ackroyd back, though, funny enough. <laughs> I really yeah. in until about a week ago. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I mean, I don't know, a television to the head. He's twitching on the floor, but that would probably be immense brain trauma. So <laughs> I think it's safe to assume he is dead. But yeah, if I did do that sequel, which was set immediately afterwards with Billy Zane as the ex-husband, like kingpin type thing, then yes, I probably bring back Ackroyd in one of those massive neck braces where he can't turn his head and just moves his shoulders. They call him Robert Belson, one of those things. And this sort of jigsaw, like mashed up face a little bit with these big scars. You're like having like psychotic, absolutely psychotic hellbent on revenge. That's another avenue. But no, spoiler, in my version, he is dead. So he doesn't come back. Nice, I think nice. Well, um, uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention in preamble was just, have you seen War Inc., the 2008 movie? Oh. I haven't uh, seen I, it. But... No, you know, I know where you're, yeah, where you're coming from. The thing is, I might have seen it, but if I did, I'd absolutely forgotten about it. Yeah. So it's, a, you know, maybe for some people, War Inc. is their gross point blank, and we are your sister and brother being like Yahoo, yeah, War Inc. can suck too. So I don't know. But if I have seen this, I've forgotten all about it. 
And I might be getting it mixed up with God of War, that Nicolas Cage film from around the same sort of time. Um, so there you go. I think it's because they 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 call it like a it's like a fierce creatures style sequel. Like it's not there's obviously yeah. not a sequel, but all the gangs back, you know, doing similar yeah. roles and stuff. So it's interesting. I'd, I'd I'd actually like to have a little look at that. I've not seen it, but I just thought I'd mention yeah. it as a yeah. They, they have sort of already done a a re a, you know same troop, different thing, uh, which is yeah. interesting. But, uh, yeah, man. For sure, absolutely. Well, Jimmy, I I can't wait to hear your. Oh God, Chippy, it's not good, man. It's not good. I've not done characters justice. I'm proud of a couple of little moments, but other than that, not what I've wanted it to be. But 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 uh, it's okay. But it definitely needs this. This would be very much first draft, and it would need some pumping up. You know what I mean? And some some Sheppy sprinkles and magic. But I think there'll be enough to enjoy. I think there'll be enough to enjoy. <laughs> um, Bloody loving it. Well, uh, should I give it to you then? Should I give it to you? Um, so mine is called Gross Point Blanks, plural. Um, to, made in 2022. We've got Armitage oh, wow. back directing. Um, and I'm, I'm going to totally fudge this, Sheppy. Uh, it's basically, um, it, it's made in 22, but we're going to just do a little bit. I don't think it's too much to ask. Like it's set kind of 25 years after the last one. If that makes sense. So okay. Yeah. A sure. little bit playing with time, but that's all right. Like you know. Only just, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, enough. The fudge here basically is just I would quite like, um, you know, Debbie and Martin to have been married a wee bit of time, then had a little had a kid themselves, and that kid is just about to go off to college. So that's that's basically where we're at with those two for this. I'm going to give you a trailer moment, Sheppy, before uh, before I start my pitch. <laughs> I kind of. I quite like how this trailer cuts, <laughs> even though it's just words. So I'm just going to give you the trailer and then like I'll launch into the pitch. So, um, so the trailer basically it's a trailer moment, but it's it's significant. It goes into different places. So we've got um, Martin Blank and um, and Jeremy Piven um, uh, sort of standing next. So Paul Martin and Paul standing um, next to each other at a funeral. Um, sunny day, Kusak I've put is in the full black suit garb. Piven is next to him at the funeral, and Piven is kind of side whispering to him. And he's sort of saying, So, you and Debbie, how, how are you guys going? And Debbie's on the other side of the congregation, giving Kusak the uber absolute evil. <laughs> and Kusak's like, Yeah, yeah, oh, never, yeah, never better, never better. And then uh, we cut from that to Debbie walking around the house with a gun after Kusak shooting at cushions and pillows. Then, oh, you better run, blank, you better run. And then, uh, and then back to the funeral. And are you, this is Piven again, you know, are you still, you know, doing the whole professional killer thing? And uh, Kusak's like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm done with all that. And then we cut to Kusak shooting a guy um, off screen with a silencer, you know, because back to Kusak, I sell pet insurance now. And then we cut again the, from the funeral to a pit bull chewing on Kusak's leg. And he's attempting to stealth somewhere. He's got his black gear on in this scene with a black cap. You know, his little I love his little stealth gear. And um and um and he basically with this pit bull on his leg slips the bullet clip out of his gun, replaces it with another clip from his pocket. This is a clip of tranquilizers, and he's trying to get the, the dog. And um and we cut to Wonder Sykes, who's gonna be in my uh, pitch. Nice uh, as an assassin. And uh Wonder Sykes has got a gun on Kusak. 
and she just says, you should have killed the damn dog. And Cusack says to her with his hands up, got to have a code, otherwise what do we have? And then we back to the pit bull, it's wriggling, Cusack fires his trank, misses, hits his own leg, and he says, God damn, and then passes out. And that's, that's the trailer. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know where all that came from, like in a blur. But anyway, here's my cast for your Sheppy for Gross Point Blanks 2022. John Cusack, Martin Blank, Mini Driver, back as Debbie. Keegan Michael Key is neighbor David. <laughs> um, Bella Ramsey, who's a new up and comer um, from Game of Thrones and a couple of other things, is Sarah Blank. Um, and uh, John Goodman as Jeffrey oh. George Grosser Sheppy. Read into that. Oh. Uh, Joan Cusack as Marcella. Mitchell Ryan, aka Bart Newbury, um, is in this one. He actually passed away, old lethal weapon baddie, this year. Um, in March. Oh, yes, yes, I, I read that. Yeah, I'm glad you got him in. This is, it. this is his, yeah, this is his final role, I guess. Bless him. And we've got Wonder Sykes. I've just called her Sykes just to save me doing everybody's two names. Yes. <laughs> nice. But she's going to be an assassin called Sykes. Um, I've got Brett Goldstein as oh. uh, a, an assassin called Brayburn. I don't know why I've called him Brayburn, but I have. <laughs> I've got um, Alan Arkin as Dr. Oatman, Jeremy Piven as Paul Spiricki, Matthew McFadden as a guy called Faddy, again, just to help oh. me, and Bill Murray as Paolo Petrelli. And um, that's <laughs> where we're going, Sheppy. Strap in. That's all I can say to you. Strap the fuck in. My breath has already been taken away <laughs> at least three times. So we open on Italy, beautiful Florence, a peaceful cobbled street, birds nibbling at the pasta between the paving. I don't go into this level of detail. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, birds nibbling at the pasta between the paving. A Vespa scooter speeds over the cobbles. A gangster-looking fellow is driving it. Another scooter follows that scooter. The driver of this one is tall, dark, wearing a suit. We hear a voiceover. Sir, we should have vetoed the job the moment they took off. It doesn't feel right, sir. So we've got immediately Marcella. Um, and uh, and the voice that responds to Marcella is the, the guy in the suit. It's a bit indecipherable. It's a bit panicked. Um, and they uh, can't really quite make out the accent. But the voice says, damn it, Marcella, what's his exit? Marcella reinforces, I think it's a trap, sir. The exit, Marcella. Marcella uses Google Maps to anticipate the twists and turns, and it's working. She's anticipating the turns, and the suit assassin is gaining on the Italian gangster until the very last exit point out of the cobbled streets onto a main street. The gangster actually doesn't take that exit point that Marcella anticipates and instead veers left, dumps his bike, and runs into an abandoned church. The suit assassin follows suit, drops his bike, and we see it's McFadden. Um, and he says, Marcella, what's the call? And she says, it's an abandoned church, sir, decommissioned. I say, get the hell out of there. And he just says, noted, and walks in. McFadden enters. Scooter Gangster is inside. They have a little bit, a tiny bit of cat and mouse. You can see the guy's trying to hide behind a pillar. As soon as he sees, McFadden sees the, uh, the, the gangsters, forehead behind a pillar and even though the angle is tight and the shot's impossible McFadden doesn't hesitate pulls out his gun takes out the dude with a shot to the temple and we just hear another voice echo through the church saying impressive Mr Faddy and John Goodman steps out of the shadows and this is our, uh, our, our new baddie and Marcella just says oh fuck and, he, and uh, basically uh, McFadden just says talk to me Marcella she says 
That's Jeffrey George Grosser, known as Triple G, wanted in 14 <laughs> countries for terrorist collusion. Real piece of work. You know, she always rolls her words. Yeah. Too, she joke, I and, can uh, see it. <laughs> and, um, and McFadden just says to her in his little appears, you know him? And, um, and Goodman steps over the corpse. Fadden's just shot, shot at the pillar with a look of disgust. And um, and uh, Marcella just says, I knew his brother, also an asshole. Get out of there, sir. You can't beat him. And McFadden is feeling, you know, with a bit of cockiness, just sort of gives it a two for one. But that, and basically, uh, and Goodman is just very calm. And he's like, Mr. Fatty, I'd put down the weapon if I were you. And suddenly two guns appear, one either side of Fatty's head. Fatty's like, what do you want from me? And Wanda appears next to Goodman with a chainsaw. And Fatty suddenly looks very anxious and terrified. And um, and, George, and uh, John Goodman just says, I'm afraid there's nothing you can do for me apart from cease trading. And Wanda revs the chainsaw up and it just switches to the blades from the, that rev to the blades of a lawnmower. And we see that Martin Blank, now we cut away, poor old Fatty's a goner. Martin poor Blank, Fatty. Um, yeah, looking a bit... All for one power. and in lots of pieces. <laughs> yes, it's amazing you mentioned him earlier. I did try I know. Um, so we've got Martin Blank looking Tony Soprano-esque, but with a black dressing <laughs> gown instead, is mowing nice. his back lawn, and Gross Point Blanks appears on the screen as the, 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 the title card. We get a couple of beats here, um, just to give us some exposition. Martin finds as he's lawnmowing a discarded cigarette packet in the grass, looks up, and his daughter's setting up for barbecue, shows the packet to her, and she just sort of shrugs. And we get the sense they've got sort of a one of these cool bonds between parents. You know, he's not scolding her for, for the cheeky cigarettes in the garden. Um, and then we have Debbie also. They, they've got a nice little place, sort of semi-burbs, not disastrous burbs, but they're in the burbs. You know, he's, 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 he's gone down that route, Sheppy. One of the biggest holes, I haven't quite figured out what he's doing for a living, but maybe we can talk about that at, at the end. Um, but anyway, um, he has given up in my in my world, Sheppy, he has he, he did retire back at the end of that um, of Crosspoint Bank. Um, Debbie is in the house. She has a podcast studio and she's editing a self-help pod. And we're hearing a little phone in bit that she's looping and doing on her little Apple or whatever. And uh, Martin Blank knocks, pokes his head around the corner and just says, I'm going out for beer. And she says, the party starts in an hour and, uh, and blank says david's coming i'm going to need a beer and we cut to the barbecue the birthday this sort of party um which is basically sort of a, a graduation you know it's sorry going to college party for sarah the daughter and we have martin sat next to um his neighbor david who's played by keegan uh i love that guy and uh, <laughs> and um and uh and keegan's like you know Oh, Martin, I noticed you were using the old Nimbus 5000 mower this morning. Ooh, she's a And basically, it's really bad. So obviously, the party is a pre-college farewell. And um, for Sarah, Martin managed to extricate himself from David and uh, takes himself away for a beat. And uh, and in that beat, he's down in his little den. And he, he has Dr. Oatman arcing on Zoom. And uh, he's like, oh, Dr. Oatman, you know, I'm about to have an empty nest. I'm losing my mind. I can't deal with it. Well, you know, and Arkin's just simply go to Europe with Debbie, get some culture, keep not killing people, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and then um, 
And as he's talking to him, funny enough, to your earlier point as well, Shep, he's handling his secret stash of weapons and stuff that he's got down there that he sort of still pines for a little. There's also a little phone in there that looks like a burner. It's absolutely dead. No, no battery life on it. Anyway, we have the scene post-party of Martin about to send his daughter off to university. All I've put here is like, there's just the moment before they're in the room. And I've just put like that kind of exactly like the bit on the bed with Debbie. There's just nice. Argo, we don't even need to know about between the two characters. It's just their their relationship is there, little in jokes, etc. There'd be a nice soundtracky moment here, emotional beat that isn't too heavily laid on. But there's the drive away, and then there's Martin feeling a wee bit lost and uh, at home, you know, with Debbie, and then just kind of Debbie saying to him that, "Hey, think of all the jobs you can do. Remember, you were going to write that book and everything." And Kusak's like, "You know what? You're right." I'm I, you, I will write that book. I can feel it. The energy. This is it. You know what? I, I don't know. I think you know. You, know, you might be done. I think I might surprise you here. And then we cut to Martin, home alone, looking at a screen, isolated, really into a page. As he's like, oh, and then he just like starts smashing, and it's like you hear him sort of go, "It all started." No, 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 no. no. And then he over elaborates. He's going, no, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Oh, he's really excited. That's really it. Yeah. And then the doorbell goes. And then as he gets up to answer it, we pan around and all it says is just, it starts instead of it's all started. And anyway, at the doorbell, we have a visit from the Pope, from a postman. And um, this this postman is actually Bill Murray as Paolo Petrelli. And, uh, and as he's exchanging a little parcel with... Um, with Cusack, like, you know, Cusack sort of starts to eye him a little suspiciously, and he says, you know, they they don't issue name badges for you guys anymore, huh? And so nobody doesn't have an all their badge there. Anyway, this, of course, escalates into a, a, a fight in the, in the house, so the kitchen come around, and basically, Murray's been sent by Triple G, our man Goodman, for a message, you know, anyway, the, I haven't really gone into the elaborate details of the fight, apart from then, ends of Murray being pinned by Blank on the carpet, and Murray just says, hey, man, look, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and, and like I say, that, that's good. It makes it easy. I haven't killed anybody for a while. And Murray's like, hey, I had a great career. And, um, and, and Cusack says, hey, really? Who, who'd, you, who'd you pop then by that? And Murray says, you heard of Harry Theodore? And Cusack says, I, I can't say I have. And Murray says, precisely, you didn't hear about him because I popped him first. And, um, and then Cusack <laughs> says, who sent you? And Murray says, you know, I can't tell you that. I wish I could, but, I, but you know. And Cusack um, said, well, look, man, I've got to do this. And he pulls out his gun, you know, puts the silence on it. It's not personal. And Murray just says, come on, I get to kill, get killed by Martin Blank. And uh, Blank says, that's, that's very kind of you to say. And Murray says, please, please. And then suddenly, knowing there's some camaraderie between the two of them, Martin just sort of says, would you mind if we just remove this off the carpet here, take it back into the kitchen, just kind of a new pile. My wife, Debbie, really likes it. And Martin's like, oh, sure, sure, I totally understand. So they, they basically take it into the kitchen. And, um, and, and then basically, that's it. Like, he, we, we, we then, um, we cut from that moment. And um, and Cusack is charging his, his burner phone. Um, when it's got some battery, flips it. Voicemail from Marcella. As he's listening to the voicemail, we, Martin's tracking back into the house, and we actually see uh, Bill Murray's legs in the kitchen. I mean, he's dead. He's gone. Like you know, two seconds back. And Marcella's voice message on the phone is just: uh, "Triple G is out. He's on the path. He killed my guy. I think he's coming for you." Um, and then at the end of it, she says, "Sir, we're now in between days." 
and um, and so basically we just have like a nice little um, uh, kind of I guess a little clash reference here for for the the site the, the song that's in the original. Um, but anyway, um, Cusack says to Murray's corpse, "I don't know who you are, man, but if you've got my older sister referencing Robert Plant, you must be in pretty deep." So basically, we see Martin just clean up a little. Then the mood like cut to moonrise over the house. Debbie comes home. Martin isn't there. She smells a detergent in the place. Starts getting a little suspicious. We cut to um, Cusack. He turns up at one of those frozen cocktail bars. Have you ever been to an ice bar, Sheppy? But it's where you wear these big hand solo jackets to get in. <laughs> anyway, I'm just imagining like in the city, there's yeah. one of those bars. Um, and um, it, but Cusack being cool and everything, he doesn't need one of those silly jackets. Um, it won't be necessary. Um, I, I'm just dropping into the bar quickly. And the guy on the door just says, hey, no drugs here, man. Cusack just flips his pockets and goes, hey, been clean since the 80s, which is a little, little reference to Cusack's career. And, um, Anyway, he's clocked the guy in reception's name tag, Bob, nails as, enters the ice bar, goes over to the, the main ice bar, tells the fella, hey man, Bob's asking for you. The guy obliges, leaves the bar intended, Cusack singing under his breath, being all cool and everything. Um, and as he's singing, the little smoke comes out of his mouth as well. <laughs> and he's just doing the, yesterday I got so scared, I should you know how people do a little bit like the guy in Die Hard when he's like, you know, da, 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 right. da, 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 you know, with that little with the beats of what he's doing. Yeah. Anyway, he hops behind the bar as he's doing it, opens the dishwasher behind the bar, unscrews a cap in it, pulls out a key, a little mini key, waits a beat um, for the ladies to be definitely empty, goes into the ladies, counts the tiles, pops a tile that's actually loose. There's a wee box in there. Unlocks the box with the key. There's a smartphone and an ID that's been a little safe thing for the two of them as well. Um, between them, him from all these years ago, and um, Jonah Master. So he he then uses this um, phone to call Marcella, um, and Marcella just says, "Look, maybe you should just surrender, sir. These guys are they're they're, they're animals, you know." And Kuzak's like, "You know, surrender. We have to cut the snake off at the head." And he's got a bit of a taste for it again now. And she's like, "Sir, I have an idea, but it's not a good idea." And Cusack uh, says, you know, you know where he is, don't you? And um, she says, sir, he's holding a secret union meeting, very exclusive, only the best of the best. And Cusack uh, Blank is like, a union meeting? She says, your invitation is in the phone, sir. You just have to pretend oh. you're there to pat, pet the snake, not cut its head off. And Cusack's uh, like, where is it? And she goes, Florida. You can work your tan, sir. Go to Disney World. And he's like, Jesus. So anyway. Yeah, I really wanted to just pull the thread of the union. I quite like the idea. It's a bit John Wicky, but we'll yeah. get there in a minute. Um, so Martin gets home um, from this little, you know, finding the burner home in there, one of their old secret locations. Um, it's dark. When he walks in, the gun cocks. He immediately, instinctively ducks, rolls behind the sofa. A silence, a bullet hits a cushion and feathers go up. It's Debbie, Jesus. <laughs> and um, <laughs> where have you been? And all this stuff. So she's chasing around the house with a gun for killing again. So that's a bit from the trailer. And um, she gives a big spiel on what it takes to take a human life and what it means and all this sort of stuff. And he's just like, Debbie, this is just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill anymore. There's just this one thing. And she goes, one thing. This is it. And he goes, look, look, it's okay. But there's a catch. And she goes, well, there's always a catch, Martin. And he just says, I've got to go to Orlando like that. And anyway, so he leaves her. I feel like Debbie's a wee bit unwritten mind. So there's, there's some stuff there. I think I think even bringing in the ex-husband would be a brilliant point just to give, give drivers some meaty stuff to do. Anyway, we have Blank at the airport, ready to go to Orlando for this conference. 
again, he's talking to Marcella. Maybe he's debating some socks or a typing or something while he's in there. And I just see him. I love the hell he always does things when he's juggling football and stuff. Anyway, he's saying to Marcella, is he lying low? And she says, I think it's for the best, sir. They seem to be in business. And she goes, well, if I may, sir, you're not getting any younger. Maybe you really should join them properly. Might be nice to retire with a little something. And um, Blank just says, Marcella, they killed your guy. And she said, they did, sir. Be careful. On the on the plane flight, he spots Goldstein, who's looking uber Goldstein, serious and scary. I thought, <laughs> and uh, Goldstein recognizes him a little, knows he's Martin Blank, doesn't say anything. Goldstein's like almost a silent character in this movie. Uh, you know, he's just got the pure Goldstein energy, you know, just being a very, very serious looking assassin. Um, what's that, Sheppy? Sorry, a yeah. <laughs> and I've got like Blank is almost a wick in this world, like he's got that status, you know, he's he's fucking he's known by everybody. Anyway, we attend the conference, and I've just put like this opportunity for John Wick style chicanery here, maybe a double entry at the hotel. It's all name badges and cuteness with the normal hotel staff. And through a double door and its weapons discarded from lots of different places you know what i mean i just thought it'd be lots of ample opportunity for guns you know sorry for gags with like you know and the other one and the other one you know and getting things out of yourself from, from all that sort of stuff lots of side eyes with all the all the assassins not really trusting each other goldstein is there again again i've but never says a word just looking nailed wonder is there goodman gives a small speech to the delegates of about 15 of them um, his speech is witty, quippy, holds the room, still sinister though, um, and is is very much geared towards a union of some sort, you know. Um, but really, I think the the, the vibe there being he's probably going to try and take them all out like he did with old Faddy, poor old Faddy. Um, so no one's really trusting anybody. Um, so with that, and just imagine lots of wonderfully written barbed little comments and snipey snippies and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then that night we had our stealth scene where Kusek puts his black cap on, manages to infiltrate, like, you know, he's still got some secret stash of stuff, um, manages to infiltrate in the hotel, gets above Goodman's room or Triple G's room and tries the old poison down the line trick. And his daughter calls at this point, and this is where the daughter is, you know, the daughter call happens. And she's like, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. And he's like, what's happening, honey? And she goes, how's school? And she goes, well, I met this guy. And she goes, and he goes, oh, yeah, and uh, that, 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 that's good, I guess. And she goes, yeah, he's out of town with work. And he's like, and Kuzak is like, well, out of town? He's not a student? And she's like, Dad, the guys here are so immature. I couldn't possibly date one. And so he's so distracted with this that um, immediately, you know, Mrs. Goodman, the little bit of poison drips onto his cheek. He's like, God damn it, it never works. So that's a little <laughs> the original. And um, he's like, I'm going to call you back. And so he cancels his daughter, makes a run for it. That's when there's, there's a dog attack, gets himself with the tranquilizer, wakes up in a room, in a hotel room, and there's a VCR to go retro in 80s attached to a TV. And he's been dragged and left into that room. And um, and he presses play on the VCR and watches it. And basically it's Goodman talking to him through the telly. And he's like, blank, my brother may have been small potatoes and an annoying fuck, but you killed him. And they had to bury him with pieces of television screen still in his eyes. Family, blank, you should know what that feels like now. It's time to close out what my brother started. And we've already hit the first mark. And at that point, we get a picture on the screen that Goodman's edited in because he's very clever with his eye movies. <laughs> and, um, and we've got a picture of Debbie's dad. Like, this goes ping on the screen. And Martin's like, fuck. He starts running down the hotel corridor, trying to call Bart Newbury. 
but he's too late at that point, almost like in the Terminator or something, we cut to Bart Newbury's house and wonder is standing over Bart's body. So it's very much a cameo. He didn't actually get to say too much. Right. Bart. Um, but then, then <laughs> Bart Newbury's funeral in Gross Point. And that's where we have our little scene with Piven. Um, and it's like, how long's it been, man? 25 years, 25 years. And, um, and anyway, <laughs> The, the Blank family, Debbie, Sarah, and Martin, staying in Gross Point at a motel. And um, and we actually start to see Goldstein hovering around a bit La Poubelle-esque Gross Point as well, getting looking very shady. Um, there's a little scene here as well where we're back in Gross Point and Martin goes to see his mum again with Sarah this time, and his mum knows her immediately, and they have a fleeting nice connection moment, and that's just a little nice little touch in this one. Um, and um, actually, that's sort of a little bit disjointed here, but with a have a little mini wake and uh, for, uh, for for old um, Bart Newbury. And uh, the blanks are all in, in in a bar. I thought I thought maybe Paul's bar, maybe Piven has pivoted. And uh, now Paul owns a bar in town. And Paul is definitely with them. And there's a scene, Sheppy, that I put at this point where Sarah goes outside of the bar, um, maybe to get some air or something. And it's quite tense um, because she's outside and Goldstein turns up in his car and actually we follow them both. And we think actually he's about to try and catch her. Um, only when we get to it, when they see one another, he's like, Sarah, in a proper Brett soft boy voice I put. And Martin, who was kind of just keeping an eye on her outside, suddenly sees Goldstein approaching her, old Brayburn. And um, and comes immediately outside with his gun. And there's suddenly a very tense standoff between the three of them. And um, Cusack's like, who the fuck are you, pal? And Sarah's like, dad, this is my boyfriend. <laughs> and then Brett Goldstein's like, wait a minute, your dad's Martin Blank. Wow. Cusack <laughs> <laughs> is not listening to any of this. He's like, Sarah, he's using you to try and kill you. And um, and, uh, and uh, Goldstein's like, kill her. And what? And Cusack's like, why else would you be here? And uh, and Goldstein's like, well, I've got a contract, mate. I've got a contract. He's being proper English as well. He's just yeah. I've got a contract. And Cusack's uh, like, oh yeah, your contract must be us. And um, and Goldstein's like, no, it's some other joker, man. And he just shows him a picture of his phone, and it's a picture of Piven with his pool. Yeah. He's in deep on some gambling debts of some sort. And um, so anyway. Kuzak's like, Jesus, man, I thought you were in. They have like a little sort of chat, but he's like, what do you know of Triple G? And he's like, and Brett's like, mate, he's got a right boner for you. And anyway, the three of them go back into the bar together. And then there's sort of this kind of, the, they're all together as now a big gang. Of like, we've got the Blanks, we've got Paul, we've got Brett Goldstein. And there's an ongoing gag in the gang of um, like Brett's and like kind of, I don't know why. I'm trying to think what this is from. It's like a bit of a Will Ferrell type gag where you're trying to stop someone from doing something and then they just keep trying to do it. Like, do you know what I mean? I can't even quite describe it to you, but basically it's the equivalent of that gag where Brett is keeps trying to want to kill Paul. Like, he's like, no, 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 we have Marcella then um, gives a final call into blank. We never actually see Marcella and Cusack uh, in the same room again in this film. Um, she gives a final call saying, Triple G is coming to you. Um, I've got, she's intercepted some intel from somewhere 
and the FBI are on to Triple G. He's coming for you guys. You've got to watch out, sir. It's happening. You know, and he's like, thank you, Marcella. And then Marcella clicks off, which is like, shit, you know, but that's it. And she kind of burns down her office again in this, in this um, iteration. Um, and then um, Goodman is suddenly in the bar. You know, the warning was was there, but it was too late. Um, perhaps even the barman has been stunned dead, possibly one of, one of poor old Paul's employees. Um, and Goodman is in the water tree, all the blanks in one place. So that was kind of part of his big master plan to kill the dad so they'd all be together. I don't know. But anyway, we have a huge shootout in the bar with coasters and beer glasses flying. And Wonder is in the shootout too. Um, in at one point, pins blank in the melee and says her line about should have killed the dog. Before, um, as she's got blank pinned, um, Brett kicks her, Brett Goldstein, Brayburn kicks her into the bar, all the spirits from the bar smash on top of her, and uh, she's like, oh, son of a, and Kusek just shoots her in the head, she's a goner, um, and in the melee as well, Goodman then uh, picks up the daughter, um, Kusek goes for the shot um, to try and take Goodman out, but he's out of bullets, Goodman then therefore has Martin Blank in his sights, classic gunshot moment, where um it's raiders style you know yeah the, the, the we hear the shot the double flinch exactly it's not goodman um and the blood spot appears on goodman's chest he drops debbie's uh behind him shaking drops the smoking gun she's absolutely overwhelmed no actually sorry drops the gun i'm editing myself as i go Shep, because i did change it she drops the gun she's shaking she's overwhelmed um, and Kusak runs over to like Debbie, are you okay? Are you like you know, and she's like, I I didn't even think I fired it. I just it was just in my hands. I didn't even like you know, and um, and then we just hear, her, you didn't, Mrs. Blank, and neighbor David, who's <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> been in a sleeper FBI cell watching the blanks <laughs> comes uh -huh. to the <laughs> It was behind him the whole time. That's the call Marcella intercepted as well. Um, and then maybe there's a beat here where Brett nearly kills Paul again, but doesn't. I don't know. It's something <laughs> but everybody's kind of straggled. Um, and then we just get like, and I kind of am invoking a bit of Lost Boys energy here. Something like this, where they're all at the bar, they're all fucking done for. And um, and Paul just does a something, you know, he basically is there in his bar. Bar is ruined. I hope he's got insurance kind of thing, you know. But he's like, gross point, man. It's a lovely spot. A beautiful, peaceful place. Until the motherfucking blanks come to town, and then that's the end of the movie. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love it very it's much. It's a two star at best, but there's some fun in there somewhere. There's a lot of fun. It's great. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. I like my cast. I think I'd really want to flesh some fun out of that, particularly Goldstein being in it. I really see him. Well, the gold scene was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, that's perfect. Um, I'm amazed, actually, it's taken us this long to cast him in something. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, great cast. Fantastic cast. Um, I would like, to, I'd love to see that. And like you said, Keenan used perfectly, uh, which is wonderful, of course. Uh, so I like that. I liked um, I liked the McFadden cameo, the Wonder Death by Wonder, amazing. Yeah, um, very good stuff. And Goodman as yeah, vengeful brother, brilliant. And there's a kind of a Blues Brothers two thousands reference there because Aykroyd and Goodman were brothers. 
in that's that. Nice. So, yeah, so totally there you go. That. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Great Listen stuff, now, Jimmy. I can't Great wait stuff. to hear yours. I can't wait. One other thing I wanted to say, and I'm really rubbish because I didn't look up the actor's name, but the friend in the first film who gives him the pen, who he then kills Lafayette Bell with, is a sense for the pen. He was in Buffy and he was in, I think he was in Angel as well. And I, and I think he became like a Whedon trooper. So I guess he was in Firefly as well, a trooper. Um, and I like him. And there's your Cusack connection because he's also in being John Malkovich. Uh, chicken soup, chicken soup, chicken soup. He's like Malkovich's agent. Mm. Um, and so I just like him and I'm rubbish, like I say, because I didn't easily could have checked his name. But he's in it, but I don't know his name, but he's there, just as <laughs> background fodder in, in mine. Um, I really like him. I really, I mentioned it before, but I do want to say again, I really like all of the side characters in this film. It's, um, you know, all, everyone, it's such a rich tapestry. When he comes in, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but when he comes in and takes the baby and at that moment, um, but before, it's like his old school friend. And of course, he wasn't just friends with Piven and Driver. So there are people who he was friends with and he's sort of, and he's not awkward among them. And he sees the mother of this baby who was an old friend of his and they go over and they just naturally, very naturally give each other like a kiss on the cheek. And that's so unlike anything we've seen Martin be like in that sense with anyone up until that point, but it's so natural and it's the thing to do, but they do it not because of social convention, but it's like, hey, um, I like that. Yeah, so I wanted to mention that. And, you know, again, it's just one of the many moments that are woven all the way through this film. Just It's made up of beautiful moments like this. And, you know, Kusek, like you said, being so top of his game. And in a way, it's like, you know, has you know, this and being John Malkovich, which was a few years later, has he ever really hit that height again? And I would say probably no. And honestly, actually, Jimbo, what has happened to John Cusack? Because it's not like he did, like, a massive flop or anything. He just sort of went into Street to DVD stuff and has just sort of disappeared. Yeah. But it doesn't sort of be predicated or anything. He just sort of faded away. I wonder if that was the choice. I can't imagine it was. I thought... like early 2000s he was doing, you know, very good, you know, strong, successful commercial work. Yeah, he. I saw his uh, thing on Brian Wilson. Did you see that one where he shared no. the, the part of Brian Wilson with them? Um, oh my God. The kid who's uh, the Riddler in the Batman movies now. He's and there will be blood. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and um, they both played Wilson at different ages, and he's, right. he's great in that. He's brilliant. And um, oh, good. Yeah, and and I always really rated his high fidelity performance, which I know yes. is earlier than the period you're talking about. But I just love. He's probably it's probably my best voice. For, you know, fourth wall breaking performance is really lovely and seamless and natural and great. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that is a great film. And that felt like you mentioned War Inc. Uh, High Fidelity felt like a, a spiritual sequel to, to Rose Point Blank in many ways. It just did, you know, just in terms of that. Yeah, I need to see that again, actually. Great. So that's nice. Yeah. And also, Cusack did like a Grisham um, with Rachel Weiss and Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman, The Runaway Jury, which was like you know, early 2000s. And, was still being churned out and and he did their Stephen King thing and he did is it 2011 is that the correct year of the film title the Roland Emmerich end of the world Mayhem oh, yeah. disaster film 
that was a big budget, big thing, and that, you know, it made money, it wasn't, again, a huge rock or anything, but, yeah, he does seem to have, you know, he did Pushing Tin, no, not Pushing, is it Pushing Tin? Yeah, I don't want to get it confused. Yeah. Yes, and Jolie, um, yeah, um, so, so that's nice. Yeah, he did lots of good stuff. Being John Malkovich, by the way, I saw last weekend, I did a great double bill, um, Being John Malkovich, an adaptation, and I hadn't seen adaptation for fucking ages. Being John Malkovich, I haven't seen for quite a while, and we did it over the weekend. It's great. I mean, it goes without saying, really, but my God, wonderful. And him in it, Kusek in that film, you know, he's so not just unrecognizable because he looks, you know, different, but he is acting so, such a different character that Kusek, I'm, you know, I've ever seen him play. He's so unrecognizable just in every sense. It's great. Oh, God, I love that film. And adaptation is great as well. So that's nice. Speaking of Nicolas Cage, Cusack was also in Con Air, let's not forget, uh, with Malkovich and Cage. So it's like all three coming together. <laughs> and Cole Beanie, but let's not get carried away. So, so anyway, good old everyone. Um, I will just get to it, and I'm sure I've forgotten millions of things. But just in terms of mine, like I mentioned, I wrote this, and then I, then I rewatched it. And I haven't really changed anything really in this, but it did present to me the alternative where it's set immediately, basically, after the first film. Ackroyd comes back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's all about Debbie's ex, uh, the end, you know, po endless possibilities. Um, but I didn't go that way. And I'm glad I didn't. I did something different. Mm -hmm. So it's gross point blank two, um, it's turning point blank, um, 2007. So it's, uh, it's another 10 years later. Um, it's again directed by George Armitage. It's John Cusack, Minnie Driver, Jeremy Piven, Joan Cusack, Catherine Zeta-Jones, um, Fred Willard, uh, Mitchell Ryan, who's the dad, Minnie Driver's dad, the baddie from Lethal Weapon, RIP, um, and Alan Arkin, with um, Thomas Hayden Church, Angela Bassett, Bobcat Goldthwaite, James Badge Dale, Mitch Pileggi, and The Rock. Um, now this is 2007, The Rock, so he had been in stuff, um, and he, but you know, he'd just come off Southland Tales, so at this point I think he probably would have wanted to done, do a, an ensemble, and he wasn't like a mega mega, he wasn't like how he is now, he'd been in things, he's very famous, big star, but he wasn't mega mega star. So it does work in being in this, but I'm very happy to go with Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, or even John Senna, 2007, he had been in things. So anyway, so that, that's that sort of role. I just cast The Rock because if you're gonna cast that sort of role, why the fuck not just go with The Rock? And 2007, it's not, you know, ridiculous. So that's- Can, um, can you help me with Mitch Pileggi again, Sheppy? Remind yes. me- Yes, um, that's um, Special Agent Skinner from the X-Files, Mulder and Scully's boss. Um, he was also in Shocker, the Wes Craven film, as Shocker. Um, he's bald, he's got glasses, um, he's, he's kind of cool looking. Yeah. Nice. Um, I also actually wrote down here Tracy Ullman, and maybe she does pop up, but I don't think I actually included her after this. <laughs> so, so maybe she's in it, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's pure uh, John Lithgow in L.A. Story, pure cutting room floor, and it's like in some of the trailers. So there you are. Um, so 
turning point blank. It's another 10 years later. Uh, one thing I did also want to say is I, something I kind of don't really touch on in this uh, this pitch, where but it is there and it's like of such a weak cheat to say, but there's deeper stuff, you know, it's like, you know, some cool stuff happens because the first film is all about the, you know, such a deep human condition and him. I mentioned earlier he, he hit point, um, he hit rock bottom when he's looking into the baby's eyes, but I would say he hit rock bottom like six months earlier or whenever it was, whenever he's looking at the fire, which he describes and he says, maybe I start to suspect that was him hitting rock bottom and then slowly coming back up. And he's just about almost at 1% human at the beginning of this film and then he goes to Rose Point and Debbie and all of that and that pops him back up into the realms of human and as Debbie says he's not broken, you know, wounded he, you know, that sort of thing so he's he's already on the road to recovery you know, but the, at the beginning of the film but this film goes deeper into like his um, the importance of humanity and life and you know there's lots of that and basically there is a theme in this turning point he, him and Debbie at the beginning of this film have reached a turning point. Uh, the film has you know, lots of little sort of things like that. It's also, spoiler, has, you know, deals with relationships and exes and how you deal with that. Is it going to be bitter for the rest of your life? Are you going to make some forgiveness? Is it going to be compatible? Are you going to be friends? All of that aspect. So there's a, in terms of the humanity and Martin learning humanity, this film is sort of centred on trying to do good and that good passing on to others basically is the underlying theme oh. um, and turning points. And, you know. uh, Martin and Debbie have spent the last decade just basically getting to know themselves and each other. It's been essentially, you know, we haven't seen each other for 10 years, so now we're just going to fucking you know, live each other. And they, you know, so the first film is partially about both leads finding themselves and after some false starts in their lives, starting their lives proper together in the first film, uh, the sequel is about them having discovered a lot about themselves and each other and are now moving into uncharted territory. They were both uh, in arrested development for so long, taking these steps into actual evolution, evolving and growing as individuals and as a couple, as well as stepping into the unknown, the uncertainties, the pitfalls, but more importantly, the humdrum nature of knowing each other so well by now that you go into the routines and you know, where does the spark go? Does it turn into something slow burning and long lasting or does it fizzle out? Uh, the film is about them becoming adults, quote unquote, and learning that there are a few, uh, as few answers here as there were stuck back in Arrested Development. Now, Martin, I don't think, has killed anyone in the last 10 years because he really has like started to understand doesn't like killing people. That's probably why he accidentally blew up Boudreau and why he fucked up You Only Live Twice in the movie. Uh, I, I mean, that always gets fucked up in both films, that string poison. It always lands on their cheap weights and other bullshit. Um, and so he's already, you know, self, you could say subconsciously been self-sabotaging all of these previous things because he doesn't like killing, he doesn't want to kill. Um, and so now, 10 years later, I believe, you know, he hasn't killed anyone. Um, and he is as close as he has ever been to being quote unquote complete and at ease um, and uh, at peace in general. He and Debbie have spent the most part of the last decade just fucking traveling, using Martin's not unlimited but not inconsiderable saved funds and savings to see the world. Uh, she's, you know, never done any extensive global traveling, I'm saying, and is loving it. 
Uh, Martin has never quote unquote seen the world and is using Debbie vicariously in a good way to see the good and the wonders the world has to offer without the dark underbelly that you know, has been his only experience thus far. Debbie has continued expressing herself through media with a travelogue program that um, really she just makes for herself using a little camcorder and filming places she's been, food she's eating, people she's met. Um, and these are put out in like 10 minute segments and are proving popular on a small scale. They're getting released on the Gross Point uh, like public access TV channel, which her retired father is acting as manager and producer and just releasing it locally. And it's kind of like her radio show and people can watch if they want to. And you know, she has like a small but loyal following. Um, and it's called Debbie Dabbles. Uh, so at the very beginning of the film, you know, and they're not slumming it. I mean, they are, you know, they are walking barefooted in like deserted beaches, but they're also just like staying in nice cities. You know, they're not going off the beaten track. Um, a TV network executive is trying to get in touch. This is Thomas Hayden Church. He's saying he's seen these shows and thinks that there's a prime time network version of this show, which could be a big hit and he wants Debbie to get it made. Now, Martin is torn because on one hand, he wants to support Debbie. But on the other, he feels this is all too good to be true. There's a hidden agenda. He smells a rat. He's like, what the fuck is this? But, you know, is that paranoia? So he tries to keep this to himself, but eventually it does come out and causes a bit of a bow wow between the two of them. But, you know, nothing too serious. They just have to do that little argument. And Debbie is like, you need to stop uh, being this suspicious. Not everyone is out to get you. Not everyone has a hidden agenda. And Martin's like, you want to tell that to the room service guy? He gave a side eye. A side eye you can see from space. And Debbie's like, probably gave you the side eye because he was wondering who's this suspicious man looking at me suspiciously and acting with suspicious intent. And Martin's like, maybe he was, you know, just like a terrible, you know, you're a terrible tipper. Either way, that man, he, he wishes us ill. And so uh, now after 10 years, the couple have reached like this turning point. Uh, they are strong and united. Martin feels he's as much a real him as ever, or he can ever be, but he's still, of course, a work in progress who isn't. Debbie has loved the travel, but the vague notion of their having a real future is now a reality. Debbie dallies, you know, the first year was fizz. Uh, the rest, this is what she says, you know, um, in, in the recording, you know, like in her radio show. The first year was fizz, the rest was adventure. But what of the true challenge of any relationship? Routine. Looks like we'll find out together, true believers. This is Debbie, an optimist in a world of overpriced cafes, wishing you all well. And so family is starting to appeal. This, this yeah. girl, that's exactly what she fucking say to sign off. And by the way, very excited about the current Cusack impression and future Cusack impressions. Just a quick, quick note. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Cheers. Uh, Family is starting to appeal to both of them. Martin's totally up for having a kid, very excited about it in theory, creating a human, shaping him or her, experiencing things through the kid as well as you know, through the love of his life, Debbie. And he's like, it's, it's an extension of self. Is that selfish or selfless? I can't, I can't decide. So they agree that they're ready for a child or two and dogs. Debbie wants cats, um, but Martin's freaked out by cats. Don't tell me, side eye. I'm telling you, I look that cat in the face and immediately feel Pressing mortal danger, uh, as well as being ready, perhaps, for putting down roots, finding, you know, finding a place to settle. It's not unappealing. Um, the, the question of that sort of life is not like freaking easy to come out, necessarily. 
but it's the question of you know will they survive the routine do you know are, are they that you know do they have that the question of not just continuing to see the world is unappealing but a decade has found has them finding each other um, and they've been trial by firing it to see if they're compatible in the long run after the initial massive fizz um you know, but, you know fizzed out naturally and now the next phase um you know are they going to try for some mutual stability um so with the, all of this in mind they're like well let's just get married we've always said about getting married and and martin's always been pushing for it and debbie's always been like let's just get in the groove let's just find ourselves and it's 10 years later and martin's like do you think we're in the groove um and so after debbie's um, been finding excuses uh, they decide they are ready for marriage and martin of course is up for something small and nice no hassles and she's up for that but you know and you know martin's like a beach you like beaches and a bar you like bars and debbie's i like bloomingdale's i'm not saying i do next to a haberdashery um debbie uh, and he have like really debated about this but now really as much for her father's sake than anything but also trial by fire that uh, they reckon they're going to go for a proper family-sized wedding uh, to make the dad happy and all of that. Debbie has always been about setting themselves tests as a couple. And now, you know, they've tried excitement and they've tried close quarters traveling. And they've tried uh, tandem bungee jumps off airplanes, but they've never tried banality, our greatest challenge. And so that's what they do. And to start all that off, they're going to have a proper big wedding to test themselves. So they head back home to Gross Point. Uh, and this is the first time they've been back. They've met up with her dad, you know, often, but, you know, in New York or Chicago, maybe one time in London or something. Um, so, you know, they're not estranged from the family, not from the dad, but they haven't been home. Home is the thing. They're going home 10 years later, large event. Lots of her family will be there who we get to meet. All the old friends will be invited, of course, so we'll sort of tangentially catch up with where they are. And also Martin has been strongly encouraged to invite some of his estranged non-immediate family who are out there. His uncle on his father's side arrives with his two loser sons who are in their like early 20s uh, to make use of the free bar and to also try and scam some money. Now this is played by Christopher Lloyd. Uh, Martin hasn't seen this uncle since he was 10 and has deep issues of course. His father you know, was very succinctly you know, examined and explained in the first film. He was not a good man and a good father. And so his uncle's basic absence and lack of support to the mother and the family and all of that, you know, Martin's totally uninterested in reforming any sort of connection. Uh, nonetheless, a slightly lovable loser, Christopher Lloyd, seems to have his heart in the right place, despite being a bit of a huckster. Um, we meet, first meet him in a bar where he's conning someone out of their money by having like a drinking contest with shots but Lloyd keeps performing a sleight of hand, switching the glasses, so he's drinking apple juice or something. Um, so the other dude is fucked up and Lloyd pockets the cash. Uh, his relationship with Martin does change over the course of the film. And spoiler, by the end, they've shown like, and he's shown a deep regret and not being part of Martin's life, or indeed his father's life, and they make a certain peace between them. Maybe a distant great aunt turns up as well. These are all humorous characters with you know, some pathos uh, and all that connection to the past. But I will say none of Martin's family are anything other than that. They don't turn out to be a secret threat or anything like that. So uh, back home, they reconnect with the old faces. New guests start to trickle in and the wedding date draws near. And, you know, a kind of a farce 
setup takes place. But threats there are, because Hayden Church, the TV uh, network exec, he is a TV network exec. He has been checked out by people, including Debbie's dad, but he does indeed have an ulterior motive and he is being manipulated by a higher power, a main threat, the main threat, I would say, to the film, to Martin, to everyone. Now, this is the army colonel who was one of the higher-ups when Martin was first recruited to like special ops and assassin work in the army. And he was kind of sort of like, you know, you, I don't want to lean into the surrogate father thing too much, or, you know, you are my role model, or you are my protege. I don't really want to lean into that. But nonetheless, he was there at the beginning and he did recruit Martin. And this, well, so like Martin, he has moved on and he represents kind of like a shady faction of the government. I mean, speaking of Mitch Pelegi, this is not played by Mitch Pelegi, but he is very much like the cigarette smoking man from the X-Files these days. Uh, hiding in the shadows, pulling the strings, um, men in black, sort of, but, you know, more sinister. He is as menacing and corrupt and morally bankrupt as it's possible to be, except it's Fred Willard. Um, so he's still really pure cool. Fred Willard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so this shady faction are closing shop. Um, heads are finally rolling years after, you know, all this has been happening for decades. And Willard has his back against the wall. Uh, Martin is a loose end, the last one to deal with, and now he's sticking his head up, Martin is sticking his head up for the first time in years for this wedding, so Willard is on the scene to see that the job gets done. He is pulling the strings with Hayden Church to get Debbie out in the open, to lure Debbie and therefore Martin out into the open. Um, he is there to quote-unquote open negotiations, um, is, you know, is Hayden Church, but he's, um, but therefore but also Willard is overseeing the operation personally as the shady branch has been getting smaller and smaller this last 10, 15 years and his future and successful retirement hangs in the balance. Um, so Martin must be put away quietly and successfully. For this, he has his right-hand man, who's an old colleague from the army of Martins who went in a similar way, a black ops killer for hire, but whereas Martin left to go into the private sector, this man stayed into the army as he needs the order and structure the army provides. And this is the rock or cheaper equivalent. And he sees Martin's deserting of the army as a personal betrayal. Uh, he looks hardcore, of course, but he's sensitive and softly spoken, socially awkward and shy, but of course an excellent killer and you know, massive. And when he lets loose, you know, it's pretty serious. Fred Willard says like, you know, to, you know, don't antagonize William, that's the rock, don't antagonize William, Martin. He'll rip your arms off faster than... Wait, didn't he actually rip off that guy's arms off in, Indo in Indonesia? Mother, yeah, uh, one arm and has some of his leg. Well, right, right. Well, heady days. They will be missed. Uh, so meanwhile, the assassins killed uh, the I'm Canadian. Loving That's an amazing <laughs> turn of energy. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he's kind of the acroid in terms of the main the main threat here, I would say, yeah. Um, the, uh, meanwhile, the Assassin's Guild, uh, the Canadian branch, has been established in the last 10 years. And uh, the founder, Angela Bassett, wants Martin to pay partially for his absence, but mainly for the death of Ackroyd, who was the ex-partner, like the ex-business partner of Bassett. And Bassett's like, that man had a vision. 
and blank. You know, he had a he had a urinary infection at best. That's it. He had both, and both made him all the stronger. Um, so the guild has sent an open invitation to some of their leading assassins to take Martin out when he sticks his up head up again at the wedding. Uh, so four Canadian assassins uh, descend on Gross Point along with the guests and relatives. Uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite and Mitch Pelegi are a duo. Um, one, obviously, Bobcat is a live wire, and the other is like a creepy monosyllabic thinker with glasses. I see him looking like the Paul Dini classic design for Mr. Freeze, um, that sort of look. Um, yeah, Pelegi, which I can see. Um, wearing a suit and stuff with Bobcat, not necessarily being pure like, rah, rah, pure Bobcat, but still being like manic. Oh, there is kind of, okay, so I have included Tracy Ullman, likes to dress as a shy older woman to lure you into a full sense of security with her quote unquote, major Lansbury vibes. Um, and James Badge Dale, who was young at this point, but still on the scene, uh, he was in 24 and Pacific and Iron Man 3 and um, a lot of things. Um, he's there, he's young, bookish, nebbish, he uses poisons a lot, and that's the other assassin who's arrived in town. A final complication for Martin is his ex-girlfriend of sorts, an Israeli special forces assassin who has a score to settle, is, uh, and this is the main physical threat um, of the film. And this is played by Catherine Zeta-Jones and she's on the scene and she is a real threat and she has a total separate, her own agenda entirely. Uh, it is established very early um, that she is a wild card and very dangerous. Um, she's introduced in a, a skanky room somewhere hot. Uh, she's in the middle of electrocuting some unfortunate who's tied to a chair, uh, but then she receives the guild's info about Martin, about the Martin hit and she apparently wants in. And she reads the message, hastily packs up her things, all the while not giving the mid-tortured dude a second glance. And then she like bustles out the door, but as a total afterthought, she stops, grabs her bag, turns off the light and shoots the dude in the head. Then she leaves, still like rummaging at her bag for her keys or something. So there's Willard's Black Ops chief and his sidekick, The Rock, as well as perhaps some random goons. There's Bassett's head of the Assassin's Guild, Canadian branch. There were those four guild assassins and there's Zeta and they're all descending, trickling in. Uh, meanwhile, Debbie is having her own problems. Uh, issues navigating the, the family are apparent and she is starting to regret letting this event happen. Her father has gone all out to create a massive event for the occasion. All the old faces from town are annoying and grating as ever, She's doing her best. Various townies have been following Debbie Dallies uh, some with snarky comments, but some, you know, with real enjoyment. Oh, I love the one in London. Well, uh, while in town, Hayden Church's TV exec speaks with Debbie to try and, you know, pitch the network show, but also, of course, get to spring the trap. An official meet is set up with Debbie saying Martin will be coming along to suss things out. This makes Hayden very happy, um, because that's, of course, what him and Willard want. Hayden Church is corrupt, and he's being bribed and coaxed and manipulated by Willard. Um, the government's week. He is being used to lull Debbie into a full sense, blah, blah, blah. Before this meeting could take place, Aiden uh, has Willard provided for a bodyguard, some scary looking dude, and they have a meeting with a member of the guild to provide info for the hit. Uh, so Hayden meets with a representative of the guild of assassins 
and then walks Eta Jones. She is scanned or frisked or whatever for weapons uh, by the bodyguard. And she has a sit down with Hayden and they drink wine and it's very pleasant. And she has a conversation about like, you know, who else is involved? What's Willard doing? Um, and he is cagey saying, you know, need to know lady, need to know. And she nods bashfully. Then she smashes her glass and smoothly pushes the stem into the bodyguard's ear, killing him. Church freaks out, tries to run, but she throws a plate like a frisbee, which smashes into the back of his head, knocking him out. He wakes up on the roof, tied to a chair, leaning back over the edge of the roof. Um, so just the top, you know, the front legs are on the chair. And he's like, ah, kept by like, kept from falling by like a silk scarf, wrapped around his neck and stretched and, you know, attached to the roof door or something. And you know, he answers all of Zeta Jones' questions about everything, about what's happening, the main players in town, everything basically that I've just you know, told you. Um, and Church is like, you're not gonna leave me here, are you? And she's like, of course not. And, um, and then she cuts the, the blade you know, and the, the, the scarf and he's like, ah, and he falls. Long scream of terror, then a, then a crash, far below, Hayden Church is dead. Whoa. It's another example of Zeta. I know it's shocking, it's a shocking moment. Um, and now I'm leaning into this, and obviously, yeah, okay, so it's that sort of archetype that I'm fond of. But in terms of the Zeta Jones character, I really do want to establish her as a genuine threat for, for a future scene that's coming up, because I do want it to be un, you know, unpredictable. I kind of compared Martin to like a superhero or a vampire or an alien or something, in that he's so above, in some ways, other people. He's so disconnected, but he, you know, he's so capable. So... With that in mind, I see it like a superpower, what he's capable of doing. And I think her, Lisa Jones's character, is being the same, total equal, cut from the same cloth. So I always like seeing some things like Buffy, where, like, for example, Angelus is speaking with Xander. And, you know, Xander's just like, this guy could and probably will just kill me any second. Um, that sort of vibe I want to go for with Lisa Jones. And that's why I'm sort of leaning into the shocking elements and so forth. Nice. With that. Uh, so that's all right. Meanwhile, Martin is having quote unquote quality time with ex friends from town. Piven, of course, who's getting on with another 10, 10 years. And, his, and um, <laughs> of course, um, and, and of course, his, I'm just called his uncle Lloyd. So he's, he's Christopher Lloyd. So I'm calling him Lloyd. Don't know who you want to be. And of course, Martin's idiot cousins, who are kind of like the ones from Nebraska, all these idiot sons in that. That, um, so a lot of ho home troops come out and all of this. Debbie, meanwhile, uh, some of the girls have thrown her like a girl's brunch, uh, which you know she's weathering barely. At one point, she excuses herself and goes to the bathroom of the restaurant just to catch her breath or her working out. Uh, while she's in there, she's looking herself in the mirror, and a voice from one of the stools is like, "Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Is there? You know, there is not a trace of paper in here." And your know, hand sort of is flailing underneath. So Debbie goes and passes under the door some, some toilet paper and they make brief and pleasant combo. And then the door opens and out comes Zeta Jones, sporting a sudden impressive American accent. Uh, naturally, Debbie has no idea who she is. And they have, you know, seemingly innocent and pleasant conversation, you know, doing applying makeup in the mirror or whatever. They discuss weddings and Debbie's fiance and men in general. And uh, Dieter Jones is like, oh, he sounds like a cat. Uh, it's been, you know, and this is, of course, what I was saying earlier, though. I do want there to be this sort of slight tension, like, is Dieter Jones going to fucking do anything here uh, to Debbie? And at the end of the counter, 
at the end of the brief encounter, Debbie does show signs. She's like, oh, this, this chick is a bit off and weird. Um, but Zeta wishes her a great wedding and leaves a slightly bemused Debbie to return to her friends. Despite his own dilemmas and meetings, Martin has been noticing some shady types about town. So he calls his old assistant, Joan Cusack, who in the interim has become a very successful arms dealer. Uh, she's doing very well. Okay. It's implied that they've stayed in contact, you know, you know just in general, she's kept him abreast of things. So we get the sense um, that, you know, so it's still a professional courtesy, but they were good terms. And he asks her, you know, could, could she send us some feelers? He's back in town. Like, sir, back in town again, another reunion, kind of, sort of, just check it out with them. So, you know, check out, send out the feelers, what's what's going on, anything you should know about. Debbie's friends are planning a Hindu for her, which she's dreading. In terms of the hen party and the wedding, Debbie is, uh, you know, has been obliged to invite everyone from town, and this itself is a pain. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so what, you know, it's a free-for-all, basically. The hen party is as tacky as she fears it will be, with girly antics, insincere well-wishes, and horrible gifts. She has to wear, like, a pink cowboy hat with, you know, the fluffy rim. And oh. is taken on tour of like the three good bars in town and the one bad club. And this is sardonic and witty. You know, she is sardonic and witty throughout, of course, is Debbie. On the same evening, Piven has thrown Martin a stag do. This includes as much chicanery as you can imagine, which leads to crazy events and meetings. And during this, Martin actually lets himself get drunk for the first time in literally decades. Since his arrival, uh, Christopher Lloyd, Uncle Lloyd, has been trying to have a drink with Martin. And Martin doesn't, you know, he doesn't corrupt his body. You know, he doesn't take anything that would impede his physical or mental functionality. Um, and, you know, that's always been the case, of course. Uh, he only eats his protein omelets and stuff. So he denies the drink. And, of course, his personal animosity to his uncle, uh, you know, his father's brother, for God's sake, you know, it means that Lloyd, is the last man on earth Martin would ever want to have a drink with anyway. But Lloyd throughout has been pestering since, you know, since he arrived in town and he's there on the stag party, of course, and he's pestering. He tries, you know, the friendship and the burying the hatchet maneuver. And he tries the, on the eve of your wedding type thing. And he tries peer pressure, which of course doesn't work. And now at the stag in the club, being a bit drunk himself, Lloyd is kind of a bit testy, a sort of a quiet bubbling, slightly of masquerading as friendly, but being a bit drunk and a bit tiny bit aggressive. And he says in the end that he's not buying the whole my body is a temple thing. Uh, Lloyd says to Martin, you know, if you're in recovery, just say there's no shame in that. Uh, and Martin finally snaps. He says the only recovery he's moving through is that from his own family, that Lloyd is the last person he would drink with. Martin says, you come here after 30 years and expect something from me. What, friendship? A drinking buddy? Well, no dice. And Lloyd is like, I know what it comes down to. And it's not this, oh, boo-hoo, my uncle never bought me a goddamn pony. No, it's because I'm his brother. And drinking with me is the closest you could ever come to drinking with him. And that just about terrifies you, don't it, Marty? And Marty stares and then just like walks off uh, quickly, turning, disappearing into the club. Um, 
and you know Lloyd sort of like and turns back to his drink. You have a couple of scenes, um, you know, and Martin then strides back to Lloyd and whilst maintaining eye contact, he walks right up to him and he takes the row of shots that have been lined up on the bar and Martin maintaining eye contact with Lloyd downs one after the other after the other um, and Lloyd watches this kind of seriously. And on the last shot, you know, Martin picks it up and clinks it to Lloyd's glass and downs that and smashes it down on the bar and then just turns and walks away. And again, Lloyd watches him go with sort of maybe great thoughts, maybe regret on his face. So this is how Martin gets drunk. Uh, and so now Martin is drunk and he dances and he sways. It's the first time he's had alcohol in like at least 20 years. So he, he sways, he tries to cope with the huge influx of booze. Uh, he's finding things at one point funny, and then he goes dark drunk and then he goes silly. Uh, he has a drunken bro moment with Piven and this random guy who's a friend of Piven's. Um, Martin kind of like puts his arm around the random guy and gets deep with him, you know, really face far too close. And then he's like, wait, who are you again? And is told sort of embarrassed by the guy that they've never actually met before. Um, and he meets Debbie as their respective parties overlap. Path, you know, their, their paths cross in the club and Debbie in her pink hat comments on Martin's quiet, wide-eyed intoxication, likening him to a rabbit on methadone. Uh, as well as the hat Debbie has been putting up, you know, she's wearing a sash, little angel wings, all that sort of thing. She's enduring it. Someone hands out air horns to all of the hens, which they keep setting off. And this becomes a small running joke with someone blasting off an air horn at inopportune moments uh, and leaving Debbie and Martin and Piven and others all exclaiming at one point or another, air horns. They hate those things. Uh, the assassin. Play, uh, played by the young and nebbish James Badge Dale is on the scene watching from a quiet booth in the club company. He poisons Martin's shot of tequila. There is a tense and funny scene where the shot keeps almost being drunk by Martin, but then he puts down and someone else picks it up and the glass is uh, bounced around and redirected and Badge Dale charts its progress. And more than once Martin is about to drink and someone distracts him, including an air horn, and he keeps you know, putting it down and eventually it looks like he's ready to finally, finally drink it. Meanwhile, uh, Lloyd witnesses Martin's quote-unquote determined to be happy, slightly manic dance on the dance floor and again kind of shows a bit of regret for goading Martin into drinking. But he does the old switcheroo with the shot glasses, uh, ending up with Badge Dale drinking his own poison, Martin drinking apple juice, and Badgedale collapses, unseen by anyone, uh, wide-eyed and coughing and choking, falling behind a table where he dies in a frothy burst of mouth foam, and everyone's oblivious. Uh, and this is the turning point for, for Lloyd. It's his moment of humanity, and it also happens to save Martin's life. Uh, Martin goes for a wee and is having trouble navigating the cramped washroom when the man at the urinal next to him turns around revealing himself to be Bobcat Goldthwaite with a garrote wire, there is an intense fight in the toilet with a heavily inebriated Martin fighting drunken master style, using his environment or whatever is at hand to ward off this violent and furious attack. He is getting the upper hand when Pelegi top pops up and hammers into Martin. He's a big dude, he smacks him in, 
uh, things are dicey with Bobcat fighting like a dervish and Pelagi beating, uh, being the Iceman. Uh, Martin ends up wrapping the baroque wire around Bobcat's wrists, binding them together, but with a slack line between. He then uses Bobcat's own arms to wrap the wire around Pelagi's throat. He kicks Bobcat's knees out, sending him down, thus pulling the wire taut and garroting Pelagi. While Pelagi's choking in his own blood, Martin repeatedly smashes the back of Pelagi's large bald head into Bobcat's face. Both die. Uh, Martin leaves them locked together in a bathroom stall, doing a pure spy who loved me and putting an out of order sign on. Uh, <laughs> another reference to Bond, which there are a few in the first film. Uh, it should be noted that this is the first time in a decade that Martin has in fact killed someone and it does have an effect and it isn't brushed over. Um, the training and skill is still there, but he does not take the act of murder lightly. Uh, human life is not a fast food wrapper, he says to someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. Martin staggers out and bumps into Debbie, and, he, and, and he's trying to act casual whilst heavily bleeding and bashed up, getting her to vacate the club and take shelter and getting everyone out. Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, I was going to have a massive gunfight here with more assassins setting up, but I figured that's probably enough for them. You know, we don't want to overdo it. That fight's kind of like the gunfight in the quickie bar you know nice. so I don't want to overdo it so he calls Joan back um, and gets some info as to what's the what he learns of Bassett and the Union and Joan is like uh, yeah a real fastest gun in the west type deal everyone wants a shot of the champ uh, uh, as if this wasn't enough Debbie's ex has turned up now this, like I say this hasn't changed due to my rewatch of the film but like I say, this could have gone in a different direction. But Debbie's ex is a totally different kettle of fish here. He, he's a jerk and a fake liberal. I see him played by Hugh Darcy, but Hugh Darcy would be too young at this point in 2007, I think. Maybe, I think so. He probably, I see the guy actually older than Debbie. So like in his like, by this point, mid to late forties. Um, he is a jerk, a fake liberal, a business titan, uh, but not evil. I want to make that clear. Uh, he's a, an intellectual, but a bit of an oppressor. I see it that they got married. You know, she was all fucked up after this. It was a few years after Martin. He needed to get out of town. And she met this guy who was successful and dashing and rich. And they got married and it lasted six months. And that's how I interpret that relationship. Um, but she left him. And that's why he arrives on, in town. Because again, she just disappeared. He was biding his time to get back in touch with her at some point anyway. But now, of course, you know, he's, he's found out about this. He doesn't like other people taking things from him. He's like a spoiled, rich business person. He should be doing the leaving, not others. You know, um, No one's ever left him before, less well than his wife. So now, years later, he learns of her impending marriage and turns up really out of curiosity um, because she's been AWOL, but also to stir things up because he's a bad loser. I see this being Sean Penn randomly, even though I didn't mention this uh, here in the credits, but that could be, you know, it could be Sean Penn. Um, he wants to take this opportunity to confront Debbie over her ghosting him these 11 years or so or more, and to make it all about him as per usual. Not a massive threat, but a spanner at least. Um, and, you know, he wants her at the very least to know that he's doing just fine. There's a scene where uh, Martin and Sean Penn, let's just say it's him, go for a drink in a bar and they actually kind of bond, although there is this sort of vague sense that Martin actually could just kill him. 
um, but Martin doesn't end up, he doesn't end up feeling insecure or hostile, more or less, towards his ex, uh, because, you know, his growth point, this is a growth point for Martin, uh, and he is a parallel scene to him in the original film with that poet bully, like he, he leaves it alone, he's the bigger man. Uh, so this ex-husband survives the film, but does see Martin in, in action at some point, and has some sort of traumatic experience, probably witnessing someone being killed. And so he finds a sort of inner peace himself. Ending the film is a slightly more sympathetic and actually redeemed character, a bit like the bully in the original. Um, so ultimately he sees Debbie and Martin and knows they, they, they've never had anything like that themselves. Um, and in fact, he's never had that with anyone. It's a wake up call to him. And he finds this sort of peace knowing that this level of compatibility is doable, it's out there, it's a goal worth having. And after being selfish in all things, relationships especially, seeing this sort of um, you know, sympathical relationship with his own life and experiences and philosophy into perspective and he ends the film as a bit of a goodie. And that's one of the nice effects that you know, Martin has had on people. After two of or uh, three appearances, by the phone, of course, always on the phone, Jones sends Martin and Debbie a quote-unquote wedding present, which reveals itself to be some excellent firepower and ingenious hardware, which Martin does put to good use. Lots of guns and, and stuff, remote-controlled machine gun or a remote-controlled sniper set up. So at one point he pushes a little button and three rifles go off at once, taking out three nasties, something like that. Plus there's a rocket launcher with a bow. Uh, like a rocket launcher really himself. You never know, sir. So also um, Arkin, he only appears once and it's a little cameo, but he pops up about halfway through. Martin calls him because he hasn't had much contact with him, but he does every now and again call him up to torment him. It's been a couple of years at this point. Martin calls him because he actually suspects that Arkin's phone may well be tapped by one of the factions out to get him. And he knows Willard's MO and so he thinks he highly thinks it's possible. So Martin double bluffs it. And so you know, he has a nice interaction with Arkin, who's retired, he's trying to fish, you know, up in his cabin. He goes, How did you get this number? Um, and Martin has a nice banter with him and gives him some misleading info, setting up Willard to reveal himself. So now we have the wedding itself. This is in the father's garden. It's nice and without major incident. Um, so that's nice, a nice touching scene between Martin and Debbie. They speak their brief vows to the other, ignoring the crowd and the priests and everyone else, speaking just to each other, just like conversationally for their vows. And I got something like uh, Martin says, you know, since we started all this, I've been thinking a lot about the end, you know, the end of all things, not just in an existential, my soul is null and void. What, what is humanity anyway? That sort of deal. More the collapse of our solar system, the implosion of all matter, past and future. Seems to me that this sort of idea or basic concept used to depress me, send me into dark spiral of the forgotten self and all that. And Debbie gives him like the wrap it up, finger turning over, single like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and Martin's like, well, these days, uh, that's all still swirling around in there, you know. Uh, but it's all about counterpoint, you know, and I don't believe in miracles, uh, but I have three miracles in my pocket ready to go for always. Uh, miracle one, I found you twice. Miracle two, I found myself and I'm still finding. Miracle three, I found us. Uh, we found us. 
And that's a good counterpoint to the absolute certainty in knowledge that all things will end, must end, and we are all dots on a speck in a void. So yeah, you're great. Uh, and Debbie sort of acknowledges this and she speaks and said, yeah, I'm not one for end of the universe type stuff, but I am certainly glad I know you, Martin Blank, because I've met phonies, I've been phonies, and you are not phony. You're a mending, twisting little shard of bright hope, because I look at you and I see me, and I see us, and that's better than any cool uh, articulate speech. So my vow to you is this, is just this, I vow to see you. I vow to always see you, Martin Black. So hurry up and kiss the bride, because I'm right here, and I know you see me too. And they have this nice kiss, and then and then everyone claps, and they have things, and all of that. Then it's the reception, and it all kicks fucking. Um, and this is really it for the third and final act. The reception is in a large marquee uh, in the field around the back of the sports uh, hall of school. Uh, it's, it's the old gym around the back. For old time's sake, uh, there are toasts and counter, countless toasts from Uncle Lloyd, of course, and the maid of honor, and Debbie's dad, and then Piven. And Martin and Debbie are fighting to survive all this. And Piven gives a massively protracted and agonizing best man speech. During this, Martin catches Debbie's eye and she sees something in there and not so eyebrow like what? And Martin makes naughty, sexy eyes at Debbie and she understands and she leans in and whispers, Luckarons. And so Debbie sneaks out and everyone ignores the bride as she discreetly exits her own speeches because all eyes are on Piven, who is going for it. And uh, she runs barefoot across the playing field, finds the sports store back door that, uh, unlocked. So in she goes, the changing rooms and locker rooms and the basketball court beyond. And she looks around and she goes to the gym's locker rooms and she's taking it all in, you know, looking at all you know, the old sights, smells. Uh, when the door opens behind her and someone enters and Debbie turns, smiling, expecting Martin, and comes face to face with Zeta, and Debbie's eyes go wide in surprise, and Deb and Zeta, I just called her Zeta, smiles and says hi, and then grabs Debbie vice-like by the throat, uh, you know, like a cobra shooting out, and Zeta says, sorry to miss the ceremony, I hope you saved some cake. Outside the hall, Martin leaves the marquee behind him, and you know, we can still hear Piven's speech rambling on behind him, uh, as he too, hops across the grass and uh, to the back of the door, the back door to the sports hall, and in, in he goes, and he finds the place empty, and he sees a shape ahead in the locker room, he goes towards it, whilst sort of starting to undress and takes off his tie and his jacket as he's walking, um, and he sort of cools out, saying there's no real rush, as Piven's speech is still warming up, and Martin's like, the speeches show no sign of stopping anytime soon, but we don't want to miss the applause, and he stops short when he comes face to face, not with Debbie, but The Rock, who punches Martin hard in the face, sending him down. And The Rock says, it's okay, this won't take long. Uh, meanwhile, we cut back to Zeta, uh, who takes Debbie further back, back, back into the sports hall. And they have like a charged conversation. This time, of course, Debbie knows exactly how dangerous Zeta is. And their exchanges on a knife edge. Zeta is calm and cool. And Debbie is like a coiled spring. She's, you know, she's not acting afraid. She's obviously terrified, but you know, she's not letting the fear control her. She's being spiky and witty. And you know, she says, maybe you need to stop living in the past, branch out, get your own man, etc. 
she, uh, Debbie is taken to the shower rooms uh, where the door opens and in walks Bassett and Zeta presents Debbie to, to Bassett, quote unquote, as arranged. Uh, so Bassett now addresses Debbie as sort of a no hard feelings sort of thing. While she's saying this, Zeta takes out a gun and you know starts attaching a long silencer, which Debbie can't take her eyes off. Bassett mentions again Ackroyd and how much his death messed with her day and some form of payback seems to be the way to go. And so Zeta has the gun ready and Bassett nods to Zeta, smiles at Debbie and finishes screwing it in. And she flicks her wrist up and calmly and smoothly and with no warning shoots Bassett through the eye. And Debbie is freaked as Zeta says to her, um, to, the, to the Bassett's corpse, no hard feelings. I just have issue with guilds, always have. And she tells Debbie uh, she caught their speeches and she caught their vows because she bugged it and she liked it. And she lets Debbie go saying she's not the jealous type. She did want payback for Martin, maybe not in a romantically spurred revenge sort of way, but maybe she was left for dead on a job or something. But she sees that he's moved on, which is astonishing to her and inspiring. So with no hard feelings really, like, you know, like Debbie's ex, uh, Zeta is somewhat inspired by Martin and Debbie's love, and it gives her hope that even the most damaged or wounded of birds can, you know, they still have the capacity to fly free and attempt to heal, so Zeta leaves. And in the locker room, uh, Martin is duffed up by, and thrown around by the rock, and he's fighting, and he is fighting back, and he has a big, big fist fight with the rock, and it's a classic fighting someone of insanely greater strength maneuver. Um, and it's a, it's a good challenge for Martin. It is fast and furious. Martin seems to not stand much of a chance, but in the end, he manages to get the drop on the rock at the last second, he scrambles around and scoops up a large bar of soap off the floor, and he rams it into the rock's mouth, and then he smashes it with the heel of his palm, slamming the soap hard back into the rock's throat, breaking some of his teeth to boot. The rock chokes to death, soapy bloody bubbles floating up and away like a cartoon bloody drunk. Uh, Zeta and Debbie do actually, uh, they, they both arrive to see the very end of his death throes. They all leave the gym together to meet Piven and perhaps some of the others, only now coming out to, you know, of the tent to see where the hell the bride and groom are. And then Willard pops up and he's carrying the rocket launcher with the bow on it. And he is at his wits end and he is quite deranged. Maybe he blows up a car and goes, whoa, the kickback on this thing, huh? And in his own special Willard way, he's jovial, but he is, he's off the edge now. Everyone else is dead. He's, you know, the walls are closing in on him. He just has to kill Martin. Everyone freezes as he advances and he's pure amiable, holding the bazooka in front of him. And he's, he says he's gonna blow up Martin and Debbie and Piven and whoever else is standing close enough as there's no one left to do it for him. And Martin now, he steps away from the group and he's walking apparently calmly, but he is shitting it up to Willard, making Martin-esque conversation, uh, leaving the group behind. So he's standing now so close that if Willard does fire the rocket, it will blow the two of them up but leave the others undamaged. And Willard's like, very good, point blank, Martin. And Willard looks like he might actually do it, or at least we think he might, but it is a trick. He takes out a tiny revolver and he shoots Martin, he goes down. And Debbie screams and everyone reacts and 
he's going to finish him off. Um, Willard, you know, he, he holds the gun out over Martin, he's down on his back. And Debbie takes out her air horn and fires off a blast. And Willard just jumps a little bit, distracted for half a second, allowing Martin to swipe, scissor his legs out from under him. Willard crashes down onto his back. The rocket launcher fires straight up in the air. Martin, Debbie and the others absolutely leg it, Martin clutching his shoulder. Uh, as Willard lies on his back, looking up as the rocket now plummets back down. And Willard says, air horns. I hate those, th and then he's blown to bits. Um, and we wrap up. There's a disco at the reception. Zeta is dancing with Piven. He can't believe this one. Debbie's ex is dead drunk in the corner, passed out. Everyone is happy. They leave for their honeymoon. Someone at Piven's like, more travels? And Debbie's like, no, now the real test begins. Practice is over, Marty. We're having a baby. And just married on the back of the car, but uh, instead of cans, it's like empty guns uh, tied with strings on the, to the back bumper, rattling off as they drive off the road to their next adventure. And it's the end, and we have credits, and the tagline is, new faces, old scores, three bar. Amazing. Uh, so there you are, Jimmy. Uh, there, there's my uh, great point blank two. Fucking hell. That's great, Sheps. That's bloody, bloody great. As always, my friend, the standard you set for yourself is insane. insane. The vows alone, for fuck's sake, were amazing. Like, just in that character, the characters are going just very good. And, like, to take the time to do that, man, is extraordinary. Um, yeah, just beautiful. Thanks. And I love how you, uh, yeah. just, more than you normally do, you sort of went for echoes of the first at the right moments you know like you said the echo of the petrol shop uh, fight you know in martin's yes. little house sort of thing and then ending with them in the car as well it was nice like that and it's just cool it's happy really happy i love the piv and can't believe his luck because isn't there a very tall blonde yes see within the first one too which was ignoring him but then yeah, yeah late to see them dancing together it's yeah really nice yeah yeah lovely so there you go yeah yeah normally i don't like it when femme fatale characters turn good at the end i it always annoys me but in this case i think it works because i think she was walking the line throughout and you know hayden church was corrupt and willing to sacrifice debbie's life and all that so it does so she was never an all out so i so i think it's okay yeah she's in part three for sure if there is a nice i do like it <laughs> With a few obvious obvious tweaks and whatnot, like my good follow, my good follow, maybe you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally, I can see that. Yeah. I love it. You could even have the other version of the of the sequel. So this is the third one. Yours is the fourth one, with that other immediate sequel as well. Yeah, no. The blank first. Oh, I, there was one thing I was going to have actually, which I didn't mention was um, maybe the two idiot cousins haven't spoken to each other in twenty years for some undisclosed reason when they were like 10 or something. Um, and But by the end of the film, it's never really gone into or elaborated on, but you see them perhaps here with Willard, with his rocket launcher, you see them just sort of like ushering the crowd, going, okay, get, let's move back, let's move back and working together. And it's just like a sort of a subtle, another positive influence that Martin and Debbie have had tangentially on people. Oh. So I thought that could be just, yeah, like a little subtle thing. That's happy. Man, the casting of Willard is fucking extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love it. Thanks. 
Yeah. Uh, well, lovely. It was one of those things which, um, which was, again, it was really nice to revisit. And I'm glad I certainly am glad I did rewatch it because I, I will say, yeah, getting the hopefully the cadence of the characters right, and you know, was definitely down to rewatching it and wanting to tap into some of that spark that everyone has with each other. It's very good. Yeah, and it's the perfect reason to go back to Cross Point, and it's just yeah, of course, it's perfect. I love it, love it, man. Yes. Thank yes, you. Yes, well, yes. lovely, Jim. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Well, there's one so, more order of business uh, before the end. Yes, there is. Well, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. Bit of an interesting one this week, because I'll say this. Sometimes, of course, a lot of the time, uh, it's, uh, it's films that we've both seen together, and they're us films. But every now and again, it's a film that I don't think you've seen. In this case, I think you, you have seen this film but I don't think it's necessarily, it's certainly one that we've never seen together. And I don't know, I assume if you have seen it, you haven't seen it years, but I might, I might be totally wrong. But I don't think you hate it. I, I, I think you might even like it. I don't know, I'm very curious, Jimmy. The film, it's from the eighties, yeah. It's mid eighties. It involved kind of Muppety angle. There's a Muppety angle. We're going labyrinth, Jimmy. We're going full mm. labyrinth. I would like a sequel to the Jim Henson, uh, Terry Jones, David Bowie, Jenny, Jennifer Connelly film, Labyrinth. That's lovely. Absolutely lovely. And uh, yeah, nice. There man. you go. That's... Well, I'm excited. I'm excited yeah, about I, it all. I yeah, love it. Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember loving it. So I'm happy about That's... that. I, I probably will revisit actually. But yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. Nice. Okay. Is that one of those jobs? Is it safe to say it's been a very long time since the last time you saw that? Yeah, probably, but not not more than twenty years. I don't know. Oh, it, feels, it feels it feels recent ish. It feels more recent than you'd think. And it was definitely oh. I remember seeing it in the cinema and enjoying it. Oh, we even met. Yeah, uh, huge. Yeah, so that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very nice. B. Yeah. B J S. Uh, before Jimmy and Shepherd. <laughs> yeah well, well well to be continued then jimmy to be continued this was lovely thank you very much how on earth do we sign off for this particular podcast jimmy i never know you always you're always better than me at this I, i'm trying to think what the last line is but is it Dude, i'm drawing a total black mm -hmm.